Welcome to a new episode of Unheard Voices. This is Andrew Muneer, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Jesse Burridge. Hey, what's going on, Andrew? And I'm very excited to also be joined this week in kind of our first official panel discussion or, th- or three-way conversation by my cousin, Gabriel Muneer. Hey, how we doing? Doing all right. Good. So, obviously, Gabe, you and I grew up together, and we saw each other very often in family get-togethers over the years, but uh, my friend Jesse has never met you, and our listeners outside of our immediate family don't know you either. So, Gabe, why don't you start off with kind of a short introduction and talk a little bit about your background and why we've invited you to join us in our conversation here today. Yeah, thank you. Um, So, long story short, I grew up in conservative evangelicalism, the, the term that I would most often use for kind of like that branch of the American church that is, you know, highly conservative, tends to be known for, you know, aligning strongly with like conservative political movements, etc. I am actually a pastor's kid from that branch. Um, so that was, you know, very obviously a huge part of my upbringing. Uh, that was really one of the defining pieces of who I was as a younger person. Um so I can, I can save a little bit of this for some uh, later questions, but long story short, I got my first degree in theology from a Christian institution. Finished that, you know, didn't really know what I want to do with my life, figured out um, that really what I, what I needed to be doing was actually teaching. Um, teaching's my passion. Um, it's what I'm good at. It's what I care about. Um, and so went back to school, got a second degree from the State University of New York for history education. So that's what I'm doing now. I am a high school history teacher here in New York City, um, live in Brooklyn, commute to Manhattan to teach. Now, in connection to, you know, really the, the topic that you've been on recently for the podcast, uh, dealing with this idea of white Christian nationalism, I am still, and this is, I, I believe, you know, kind of the perspective that I'm bringing today, um, I am still an affirming Christian. You know, I, I believe in the what you might call kind of the fundamental tenets of Christianity. If, if there are any uh, Christian listeners who are familiar with some of the terminology, I could honestly say that I would agree with and affirm the Nicene Creed is kind of like a, a simple way to put it. Beyond that, however, I am what many people would call a progressive Christian. Um, LGBTQ plus affirming, very uh, much in the pro Black Lives Matter, pro-racial justice camp, um, you know, all of those kind of, to sum up, you know, kind of stock more left-leaning positions for American society. Climate change is a problem, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the position I'm in, where it's, it's a little bit of both worlds and, you know, very much the circles that I was raised in, you know, those very conservative evangelical circles, there's kind of an idea that people who inhabit the position that I'm now currently in um, aren't really Christians. Uh, right. we'll, we'll come back to that idea a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's very much a departure from what I grew up with, but it does give me a little bit of a unique perspective on some of what's happening in America today. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. And for the listeners, I want to state that uh, this conversation is going to be specifically focused on the issues of white Christian nationalism from a more moderate Christian perspective that I believe Gabe really exemplifies. And we're not interested in having a theological 
debate here. We're not going to be talking about metaphysics or, or differences in the theistic versus atheistic worldview. It's not going to be two atheists grilling a theist. <laughs> we really just wanted to no. bring Gabriel onto the show here because he's been very outspoken against the growth of white Christian nationalism in America on his social media. And we thought it would be very interesting for our listeners and for, you know, even a broader audience in general to kind of reaching across these philosophical lines to have a conversation, a respectful conversation, and to hear from more moderate Christians what they kind of feel about the issues that are kind of front and center in American religion and politics right now. So we came up with a list of interview questions, and we're going to ask Gabe the questions, and we're going to respond to his answers in a conversation. And we'll get started with our first question here, which is, uh, how have your personal views evolved from the views taught to you in your upbringing, and what influenced these changes? Yeah, so um, already kind of started addressing some of this in my intro. Um, you know, coming from conservative evangelicalism, you know, the Christian groups, denominations, you know, whatever term you want to use, that most closely align with what many people outside, and I want to be clear, you know, a lot of what I'm addressing is kind of to people who are probably not coming from a, like, theistic Christian perspective. I'm, I'm expecting that's probably a good chunk of your audience. Uh, there's probably a mix 50-50, I'm sure, but go ahead, yeah. Interesting, yeah. Um, so coming from those circles, as I already stated, you know, those are circles that are, you know, anti-LGBTQ, um, anti-abortion, anti-choice. And so, you know, that's what I grew up with. Um, like I, I tell my students sometimes, you know, if, if I'm having a kind of a more open, honest discussion with some of my students, you know, I'll just tell them, I'm like, hey, you need to understand when I was your age, I had completely different beliefs, um, just radically different. So I grew up, um, you know, believing things like, oh, you know, homosexuality is a lifestyle choice. Um, you know, believing abortion is directly equivalent to murder in all cases. You know, all of those kinds of ideas. That's what I was raised with. That's what I bought into. And so as a Christian, you know, as I, as I said previously, for those who, you know, know some of the terms, I do still affirm the Nicene Creed. Some of those. So go ahead and expand on that for us really quick, because for a heathen like myself, you know, <laughs> these are some things that I didn't really encounter growing up. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm actually, I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to read through the whole thing. No, that's okay. <laughs> go ahead. The Nicene Creed, you know, is really one of those, one of those statements that it kind of encapsulates a lot of the core ideas of Christianity that almost anyone who falls under like anything of the umbrella of Christianity is going to like at least partially agree with just about everything in there. Um, so, you know, ideas like the divinity of Jesus Christ, like Jesus was both fully human, fully God, you know, that's like a very standard core theological tenet of almost all Christianity. Right. You know, ideas like the, um, the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. the, you know, the role of the Holy Spirit as part of the Trinity. So some of those just very basic, very core beliefs to this day, still fully affirm all of those. Um, I still look to the Bible as my holy text. Now, the Bible is probably the biggest divergence point. Uh, it's probably one of the biggest, like really clear points of um, like a big shift in my own thinking. So it's kind of what I want to focus on to answer this sure. question. 
Um, again, answering the question of like how have my views changed? Um, one of the big difficulties coming up in the conservative evangelical world is that they push very, very hard for, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about this later, this idea of the Bible as literal and inerrant. Um, and again, right. for those who don't fully know those concepts, literal meaning like you just like what it says is what it says. Yeah, no interpretation required. That Generally, yeah. Everything that's clearly stated in the Bible is God's word as God intended it to be written and interpreted. Yes. Exactly. Um, and, you know, more sensible people will understand, like, and, you know, I heard this even in, like, the conservative circles, more sensible people will be like, okay, you know, you got to take poetry as poetry, you know. So they understood there were some different types of literature. But generally speaking, as you said, if it's, like, a clear statement, that's just direct word of God, period. Mm. Um, and the idea of inerrant, that, you know, it's the direct word of God and it's, like, faultless. And so, you know, really raised with those two core ideas and that those couldn't really be challenged. You have to agree with those. And, you know, kind of, again, what I intimated earlier, if you don't agree with those, well, you probably aren't really a Christian. Right. And that's actually been kind of one of the biggest steps for me is kind of reaching a point where it's like, no, no, no. Like, I cannot rationalize that as like the way I understand scripture anymore, that it's somehow like absolutely perfect, completely, you know, just direct word of God. Um, and really my current understanding without getting too much into like the nitty gritty of the process, but my current understanding really flows more along understanding that the Bible is a record of humanity's interactions with God. Um, so, you know, do I believe that God is speaking through the Bible in some sense? Yeah, absolutely. Do I believe that like every single line is like the exact direct speaking of God to me? No. It's Iron Age tribesmen recording their interactions with God. And then, of course, it's been translated and transcribed and retranslated and retranscribed countless times. So even if the original text was the direct word of God, then it's entirely likely that aspects of it have been lost or changed over the centuries. Yeah, you could lose pieces. Um, so again, I don't want to go too much into that because we're going to talk a little right. more about that later. Um, but that's really been the core and kind of like once that kind of clicked in my head, that's when a lot of like beliefs really started to shift for me. Um, and that really pairs with one of the things that drove that, um, that change for me was really, um, you know, based in knowledge, getting out, getting into, you know, studies, interacting with people who are from different backgrounds. Um, the LGBTQ plus issues actually probably one of the easiest examples for me. Um, there is a concept all through scripture that's really summed up, and I'm actually blanking on the exact verse, but it's the idea of you will know them by their fruit. Um, so kind of, you know, is this guy like the real deal? Well, you'll know based on, you know, the results, right? Uh, if he turns out to be a scumbag, clearly not the real deal, right? Um, and it's a concept that goes all through the Bible, right? That like, you know, if something is of God, if it is in accordance with God's will, God's desires, you should, generally speaking, see positive results, right? Like if you're living according to the way God wants you to live, you should see positive results. And as I, in my twenties was really wrestling with some of these issues and, you know, interacting and engaging with LGBTQ plus folks, it was very, very striking to me that the people who were trying to live according to the conservative evangelical interpretation of human sexuality and marriage and so on, um, were not being helped by it you know, the LGBTQ plus folks who are trying to live within that, who are undergoing things like conversion therapy, who were, you know, even in some cases, people who are just simply being celibate. Mm. 
ultimately there's just so few examples of that actually resulting in anything that even resembles a healthy life for those people. Um, you know, there's countless instances of suicide, abuse. I mean, the list goes on. And so for me, as someone dealing with those, I had to look at that and say like, okay, so if this is God's will that they like stop being LGBTQ, essentially, that should have good results. And it doesn't like ever. Um, and so for me, as like a younger Christian, that was like a moment where I had to stop and say, okay, I think I need to reassess something here. Um, because that those two things aren't connecting the way they should. Um, and that was one of the pieces that kind of got me rolling on like, okay, do I need to re-examine how I'm interpreting, how I'm dealing with scripture? Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, that mostly answers that. It's, it's a lot of different influences, but what it really comes down to is a change in interpretation of the Bible, really fueled by knowledge of other humans, other people. And personal experience, too, with these groups yeah, that yeah. you have uh, in your upbringing or in your, your religious experience had been targeted or discriminated against, but then you have some personal experience with them, and then you find less justification for that kind of intolerance. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the classic story, right? You know, sure. you grow up with some form of bigotry. You actually interact with those people and go, oh, whoa, I'm bigoted. Well, um, or, or you come to realize that they're, they're people, too, with just yeah. as much, you know, yeah. complex internal emotional lives and worthy of the same human rights and, and treatment and inequality. 100%. Now, Jesse, you also grew up in a very heavily religious household. You could say that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, one, one difference, I think, is that Gabe, I believe all of you guys were, were homeschooled. Yes. <laughs> Is that correct? So Yes. Yep. That was a little bit different, but Jesse, as far as some of the things that Gabe has discussed here with the Nicene Creed and some of the other aspects of that particular belief system, these all kind of ring true for you as well in your experience? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty common. Like I grew up in a pretty similar environment, like really huge evangelical church, sat like five thousand people in the main sanctuary, like they had two services on Sunday and we'd go every Wednesday night midweek. And I did like the tithe message for our youth group to try to get kids to give their lunch money to Jesus every Sunday night. <laughs> so yeah, like baseball. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is a common set of experiences that we have. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in like a, like I said, like that evangelical, I even spent some time in an assembly of God church. So like the, the really, really far right. And um, so you were homeschooled, but I actually, I went to um, a private school that was run by the church I went to. Mm. And my own mother actually was my kindergarten teacher in this school. So, yeah. yeah. Classic. Oh, man. You must have gotten bullied all the time. You could say that, yeah. <laughs> Better than being bullied at homeschool, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's... That's corporal punishment, and that's a whole other discussion completely. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I think Gabe and I are pretty much on the same page socially. I mean, mm. at least that we share all of the same mm. beliefs about, mm. like, how people should be treated and LGBTQ rights and all that. So, like, socially, I would consider you an ally, even though, obviously, we're going to probably differ theologically, I would imagine. Yeah, for sure. All right. Jesse, I'll go ahead and let you uh, ask the next question here. Yeah, um, so the next thing we have um, on the list here is just what are the biggest differences between uh, modern conservative Christianity as represented by white Christian nationalism and the teachings of Jesus as you see them? 
so this is obviously, you know, something where if you brought it like a more conservative person was listening to my answer here, they'd be like, how dare you <laughs> stop it at once. <laughs> um, but I mean, from my perspective, you know, you look at um, kind of your mainline conservative evangelical churches that are leaning hard into white Christian nationalism, um, you know, the culture wars, all of those ideas. Um, then you look at early Christianity, really thinking like uh, what we see from Jesus in the text and like the Gospels, and even through the first couple hundred years of like what little clear information we have about the very, very early, like pre-Constantine Christianity. Really, Constantine's kind of where I draw the line between early Christianity and like what you might even say as modern Christianity, even though, you know, he's obviously very early kind of medieval era. Um, but basically pre-Constantine, kind of between Jesus and Constantine, it's a totally different religion, like generally speaking. You look at the direct teachings of Jesus and what actually happens with Christianity in those first couple hundred years, and very generally speaking, Jesus is clearly anti-establishment. I mean, you'll, you'll even hear conservative churches preaching about him being anti-establishment. They just try to like point at a different establishment as the current bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> Or try to use it to advocate small government, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but he's just anti-establishment, um, not just in like a governmental sense, but in a cultural sense. Um, Jesus is opposed to conformity. Um, and at its core, conservative evangelicalism and white Christian nationalism, this is one of the reasons those two are fitting in together so nicely, is that they're both about conformity. Mm. Um, this is one of the reasons why, you know, LGBTQ plus issues are such a trigger point for them. Um, it's one of the reasons why many neurodivergent people are having like major issues in the conservative evangelical church because they want conformity. Um, and that's just really anathema to what you see Jesus doing in the Gospels. He's anti-conformity. He's anti-establishment. Um, another big difference um, is that with, and this really connects directly to what I mentioned about like um, Emperor Constantine, with the movement of Christianity from being a fringe religion pre-Constantine to being like the state religion post-Constantine, um, is that it really picks up ancient Greco-Roman misogyny very, very heavily, very aggressively. Um, when you look at, you know, Jesus in those first couple hundred years of the church, you know, I'm not going to claim like total flawless egalitarianism, but it is relative to its time actually like highly, you know, pro-woman. Um, you see female leaders in the very early church. You see Jesus making some pretty pointed statements, you know, the classic, you know, Lord, what do we do if a woman's too hot? Well, pluck your own eye out. That's your problem. You know, <laughs> you, know you see a lot of very pro-female statements from Jesus. You see a lot of that in the very early church. And then around Constantine, there's just this massive shift and that is gone. And again, not claiming total egalitarianism, but, you know, very progressive for the time period. Um, so again, that's a huge shift um, where, you know, most conservative evangelical churches are still saying, you know, we won't allow a woman behind the pulpit unless she's just talking to other women. You know, that's, that's the, the one exception. Um, even then, some of them are uh, not too sure about that. And, and we'll, we'll kind of swing back around to this later, but um, conservative evangelical Christianity, as much as they like to preach about like, you know, money's the root of all evil and all that, culturally, they highly and aggressively affirm um, the accumulation of personal wealth and personal profit. There's, there's a highly individualistic, fend for yourself, profit for yourself 
um, mindset in those churches. And they'll, they'll really kind of cloak it in these ideas of, you know, oh, we're really pro-personal responsibility or, you know, we, we just have that Protestant work ethic. You know, that's a, that's a phrase they love. Yeah, Jesse, you, you're familiar. <laughs> yes. I, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I heard that many, many times. So they'll use those ideas, those phrases to kind of cloak this idea that really they're very pro-wealth, um, even though Jesus is aggressively anti-wealth. You know, he's, he's very pointedly, you know, and, and this is, I'm going out on a little bit of a limb here, but, you know, he, he's pretty pointedly like pro-wealth redistribution, honestly. Yeah. Um, like, it's not really a leap based on his words as given in the Bible. And so when you look at the actual things Jesus does and says, and you look at the actual things that modern conservative Christian churches are doing and saying, uh, they don't look like the same religion at all. Um, it's, it's essentially, I would argue, co-opted at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's ironic because so many of them are true believers, um, but it's ironic that many conservative evangelical churches are really proving Marx right. <laughs> Um, Marxist comments about religion being used, you know, the opiate of the masses, that it's used as a tool to control. Mm. Even though many of these people are true believers, they are co-opting a frankly different religion and using it to control, to demand conformity. Right, right. You know, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying is, is a lot of it's very wealth focused. And Jesse and I have had a few conversations about things like the prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm and how that's really informed a lot of especially evangelicalism in the United States. Um, As kind of a side question branching off from this one, what do you think has kind of influenced this co-opting of these ultra-conservative kind of personal responsibilities and this kind of glorification of wealth and status within the modern evangelical church? Yeah, well, and, th- and this is why I really like push to connect it to Constantine, because I don't even really think it's that much of a modern problem. Um, I think we're okay. really seeing it heightened in our like, kind of late capitalist society. Um, but it's not strictly speaking a modern problem. You know, I mean, you know, look at the, um, the popes throughout right. your whole, I mean, kind of late medieval through early modern Renaissance era. Um, you know, <laughs> that shit gets wild. Well, and the Catholic Church is still one of the wealthiest organizations, you know, as far as, as property and, exactly. and priceless historical documents right. and artifacts yeah. probably in the entire world. Just look at the Vatican, dude. The whole thing yeah. is just coated in gold top to bottom. Like, it mm-hmm. doesn't seem like the work of a carpenter, if you ask me. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I really see a lot of it coming. Um, this is a point, actually, this is something like kind of a sub-theme that I actually put into my own curriculum um, as a teacher, mm. um, is helping you know, my students see uh, the danger of connecting politics and religion. Mm. Um, because this is true, not just of Christianity. Right. Yeah, and I don't want to get into too many details here, because you know, we're not talking about other religions. Um, but, I mean, you can just track throughout, like, most of history when you create, you know, these, like, very firm intersections between politics and religion. Um, that is when you are most likely to see violence connected to religion. Uh, it's when you've introduced politics into the game. Um, right. That's what Constantine does. And so then you immediately have, you know, this movement that, okay, this is no longer a fringe religion. This is mainstream. This is, you know, this is the religion for the empire. So... If you want to be an upstanding citizen, you've got to be a good Christian, uh, but that also ends up flowing the other direction. 
upstanding right. citizens must also be good Christians. So if he's wealthy, if he's powerful, if he's good looking, well, gosh, he must be a great Christian. Um, and so you see it coming in extremely early. Um, and really what we see now with the conservative evangelical church, it's just a continuation of something that's been happening for 1600 years. Interesting. Very interesting. There was um, something, you, if you don't mind, if I cut in for yeah, just yeah. a second, Andrew. No, no, go ahead, Jesse. Um, there was a point that you made that I did kind of want to unpack just a little bit because I, I think it'll, um, I think it can be helpful later down the line in the conversation. You mentioned um, that you you felt that Jesus was pro wealth redistribution. I, if I, I heard that correctly. Mm -hmm. So just quickly, do you think then that more um, like social safety net type policies like welfare, uh, Medicare for all, things like that. You think that those types of policies are reflective of the teachings of Jesus in that way? So you think that like social liberalism is more Christian, so to speak, than say the way conservatism is being practiced in the United States. Is that a fair characterization? Yes. I always want to be careful with that. So I'm going to repeat this again soon. Fundamentally, the Bible is basically apolitical. Um, it's not a political document. Um, and it's actually pretty pointed that it's not a political document. Like the Bible says that it's not a political document pretty clearly. Um, so I always want to be careful. You know, I always like cringe when someone says like, oh, Jesus is a socialist or Jesus is, a, <laughs> you know, Jesus is a anything. I always kind of cringe a little right. bit. I'm like, that's not the point, dude. But, you know, very simply, yeah. Yeah. I would say okay. that I personally believe that like, um, Oh, I don't even really want to use the term liberalism because if we want to get really specific with our political terminology, there's some issues there as well. Um, but right. but really kind of like left-leaning social policies, I think generally align more closely with the teachings of not just Jesus, but really the Bible broadly. Yeah, I think that that is a fair description of my viewpoint. Sure, I just wanted to get you to unpack that just a little bit. Yeah, no, 100%. And, you know, when you look at statistics, obviously Christianity is still the majority practice religion in America and mm. that is irrespective of political affiliation. Yep. You know, the majority of Republicans are Christian. The majority of Democrats are Christian. So obviously there's ways that both parties integrate the religious belief into their political worldviews as well. And, you know, I think we've kind of demonstrated in the exchange we've just had here, how both parties can kind of reconcile the religion and the, the politics. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so let's go ahead to our next question here. So a majority of white Christian nationalists support the idea of biblical inerrancy and literalism, as we mentioned, and we kind of touched on this already a little bit, but uh, Gabe, in your opinion, are these views of biblical inerrancy and literalism rational and if not, do you think that this irrational mindset or willingness to kind of accept things at face value, let's put it that way, might influence the adoption of conspiracy theories like QAnon, uh, which is also embraced by at least a quarter of white Christian nationalists? Yeah, so um, I thought this question was really interesting. Um, I, I didn't want to make it a leading question. I just I was trying to word it in a way that wasn't like sounding accusatory about you know people's <laughs> interpretation of scripture. Totally get you. Um, I think the term rational is is interesting here. Um, I think that the belief in literalism and inerrancy regarding the Bible 
fundamentally can be rational. Mm. Uh, I think it can be. I want to stress that. Um, and I've interacted with people for whom the belief, I would say, is rational. They can, they can put forward a measured, I mean, frankly, in some senses, sensible argument for why they believe those things. I still know many people who can do that. Um, and I'm not going to call them irrational because I know they aren't, you know, right? Like right. it's really about the ability to create a, a cohesive argument. Mm. Um, so it can be. Generally speaking, is it? I don't think so. I think it is for, and I'm going to be very blunt here. I think it is a rational viewpoint for a, you know, top 5% to 1%. And, you know, obviously I don't have real statistics here, but, you know. Right, right. Um, but this, you know, this very top minority of Christians who have a degree of philosophical and theological education where they can really kind of grapple with it at that level, they can rationalize this in a real sense. Um, I think for most people, it isn't really. I think it's just something they believe um, and they can't really defend it. They can't really explain it. And I think that your connection to QAnon, to this idea of conspiracy theories, and frankly, I'm actually, I'm going to take this question even a step past QAnon, which is, you know, so blatantly insane conspiracy, um, climate change. Sure. Why is there such a willingness among, obviously conservatives in general, it's an issue, but especially among conservative evangelicals, why is it such an issue, this willingness to just say, like, nope, I'm going to refuse to believe the overwhelming majority of qualified scientists on this issue, and I'm going to believe Rush Limbaugh, um, <laughs> who, you know, thank goodness, not currently poisoning minds uh, to the same degree. But, you know, I mean, I grew up listening to him. Isn't he dead? He, he's dead. At this yeah. point, yeah. He, yeah. he was being yeah. tactful. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, okay uh, that's like, yeah, he's not to the same degree or like at all, actually. Yeah. Um, he wrote some books and, you know, there's recordings, so I can't say we're 100% clear. Okay, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Fair, fair point. His, <laughs> legacy, his legacy lives on in media, yes. Yeah. Yes, um, yes. But point being, you know, why were people willing to say, I'm going to ignore all the actual qualified scientists, I'm going to listen to this random talk show host. He's going to be my source of truth. Mm -hmm. Um. And, you know, that's such a clear issue through conservative evangelicalism, through white Christian nationalism, through really, I mean, Trumpism broadly. You know, why did a ton of people just look at this guy, Trump, and be like, he's our boy, everything he says is gospel, doesn't matter what any, like, actual professional or expert or, you know, really anyone else says, he's our, he's our guy. And I, I think it is really fair to connect the views of inerrancy, the views of literalism, to that willingness to believe just any guy who's saying something that you like, because there's already kind of this conditioned acceptance that like, hey, this book is 100% true, no matter what, no questions asked. And for the average person in the pew, you don't really need to rationalize it. Because you expect that your pastor or your church leader has done all that rationalizing for you. And he's, you know, so steeped in the religious culture and the religious study that, you know, he's already thought of anything that you could possibly think of, and you're trusting mm -hmm. him to give you the proper interpretation or the... Basically, it's when we allow other people to do our thinking for us one way or the other. Yeah. Um, do you mind if I ask a question uh, just real quick to kind of uh, dovetail with what you just said? We kind of mentioned, like, how I grew up, but um, I have, a, like, a really strong right-wing contingent in my family, too, like Trump supporters and all that. And um, it gave me this thought. I wonder, what do you think about, or what do you think the significance is of 
the fact that so many people in this country seem to equivocate being Republican with being Christian. In other words, like uh, like what Greg Locke said, like you can't be a Democrat and a Christian in this country. Like, what do you think explains that connection to where you can't be a Christian if you're not also a Republican and you can't be a Republican if you're not also a Christian? You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think it goes quite as strongly um, the second direction you mentioned, like you can't be a Republican if you aren't also a Christian. I think there's a lot less of that. You do see like little bits of it. Um, it's very hard to be a Republican political candidate and not be a Christian. Oh, yeah, that's or, for or sure. Not yeah. Claim yeah, that's, it in yeah. Some sense. that's virtually impossible. Hmm. There's like a tiny number of people who escape that one. Um, like as a voter, I don't think that's necessarily true. But again, for a politician, definitely. Um, but yeah, like, I, I think more importantly that I have like, you know, if you're not a Republican, can you really be a Christian? I think that connects to a lot of things. Um, so this, this has the potential to be a really broad question. Um, one small piece I'll just kind of hint at, and then I want to keep moving uh, to some things I think are a little more clear. Protestantism, um, and really, I mean, Christianity in general, you know, most people kind of think of Christianity as a European religion. It's kind of tied to the idea of the history of Western culture itself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, fundamentally, it's not a European religion. It's an ancient Near East religion. But culturally, in many ways, you know, modern Christianity, especially conservative evangelical, is essentially a European religion. You know, that's where we're getting a lot of these influences. And when you look at, you know, Europe culturally and historically, and it's not necessarily so true today, but long term, Europe has been an extremely splintered, you know, cultural and religious area for thousands of years. I mean, you look at the introduction of Christianity to um, like the Scandinavian regions it was extremely violent um, because the both the Christians and the pagans in that area, like the moment they realized like, oh, you're different from me. I mean, there was instant violence. Um, and that's that's kind of common across Europe. You know, you see it throughout, you know, the Catholic Protestant wars, et cetera. And so I think there is already kind of built into this Western European approach to Christianity, this kind of almost extreme, like, you got to be in the same camp I am or else. It's that conformity thing again. Yes, exactly. Um, so I think that's, that's one big piece. Um, the other, and I think this one's probably a little more clear, it's a little less nebulous, uh, historical, cultural discussion. The very clear answer is that Republican and broadly conservative political ideologues, think tanks, newspapers, all the different forms of media, communication, etc., that politically and religiously conservative people are ingesting over the last, um, really, you could probably just say 100 years, but more, more closely, 60 to 70 years. They've done an incredible job of aligning almost every Republican talking point with Christianity. Um, this has been something that's really been in the making. Cause you go back to like the 1960s and you didn't have people saying like, oh, like if you're a Democrat, you can't be a Christian. If you're a Republican, you can't be a Christian. Right? Like that didn't happen. It's really the outcome of decades of very intentional work by the people who are like creating a lot of the, you know, the mass media, a lot of the, you know, um, homeschool materials. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, to, yeah. To, to bring in a little bit of that. Um, those people are very intentionally tying Christianity to Republicanism to the point that, you know, 70 years down the road, most people who are, you know, conservative and Christian see those two things as virtually inseparable um, mm. because they've been taught, I mean, from infancy 
Christians are anti-abortion. Christians are anti-LGBTQ. Christians are anti-communism. And when they say communism, right. they just mean anything. <laughs> anything that's not 100% right. unregulated <laughs> capitalism, yeah. Anything to the left of hunting the poor for sport. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's... <laughs> yes. I love it. That, I love it. Well, yes. and not to continue to drag this aspect out further, but I'm curious what you guys think about kind of the the ratio of of influence has it been the politics trying to align itself with the religious values to court the religious vote or is it more the religious people trying to make their voice heard in politics by influencing the legislation or the political party what do you guys think is kind of the balance of those forces i think it's a feedback loop i think yeah it's, for I think sure both things feed into each other like yeah we talked about in that earlier episode about how Falwell and the moral majority movement <laughs> deliberately kind of shifted um, conservative politics toward Christianity and used abortion as a wedge issue mm. in 1978. Like, we, we talked about that, so we know right. that. But I think the feedback loop comes in when, when people who strongly identify as Christian and especially people who in late-stage capitalism are being um, displaced. Like, you, you look at the less educated people say in the, the Midwest and in the South, those people are losing representation um, and they're predominantly Christian. So when they hear Republican politicians espousing the same sort of spiritual beliefs that they have, they feel that those people are representing them and they will tend to vote for them whether or not they agree with certain social policies. Although mm. it, it seems to me like most of them are towing the line almost completely with all of the Republican talking points as far as like abortion and gay marriage and who gets to use what bathroom and all of the silly social issues to get people riled up. The culture war stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, yeah. That like selective outrage machine that keeps going mm. in both directions these days. 100%. Um, yeah, I would completely agree with everything Jesse just said. Um, feedback loop, I think it's just the perfect word to describe it. A quick note. Um, sure. Uh, you know, I apologize because, uh, like I said, I wasn't able to listen to all of the previous episodes. Oh, no, that's no problem. I know everybody, you know, has their busy lives <laughs> and we can't always, you know, set aside four and a half or I think we probably got up to like five hours of content. Yeah, there yeah, on, no, on white Christian uh, nationalism. No, man, this is like this is like Transporter 2. You don't have to see the first one to be <laughs> yeah. like, what's going on. <laughs> all right, go um, ahead. Go ahead, Gabe. So a uh, question, as far as Falwell's concerned, because uh, you mentioned abortion, how he used abortion as a wedge issue. Did you catch what issue he was on before abortion? Yeah, we talked about that. Mm -hmm. But Gabe, go ahead and give us your interpretation of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very simple. I mean, um, I mean, this is why you have um, the Southern Baptist denomination. There was a Southern and a Northern Baptist. Um, because around the Civil War, they split because the Northern Baptists were like, no, nah, we're not cool with slavery. That's morally wrong. And the Southern Baptists were like, no, we're going to try to use the Bible to defend this. Mm. Um, that's why you have, you know, that entire denomination. It, it was created to defend slavery. Um, and so, you know, really a continuation of that, you know, they were anti-integration. They're pro-segregation. Right. Um, right. And like, that's what he tried to make his wedge issue. Um, and he just mm -hmm. failed. Like he, he saw the writing on the wall and very quickly was kind of like, oh, uh, yeah, no, I don't believe that anymore. And, you know, refocused on abortion because he realized very quickly that that was just a losing horse. Yeah. Yeah. So they jumped ship there. But I mean, I think that's one of the clearest cases of like really obvious political expediency. 
in the conservative evangelical movement where like leadership was like, we're going to talk about this issue and we're going to, you know, we're going to fight this. And within five years, they're like, oh, no, 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 we don't, you know, we're not against that at all. You know, no issue. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I see that as one of the most obvious, like recent examples of mm. like a simultaneously political and religious movement, just very blatantly like shifting gears to just like respond to you know, popular opinion and make sure that they're like aligned in the most effective way for them to continue gaining power. And that's what I see with right. Paul there. Yeah. And we covered that yeah. exact thing in the earlier episodes as well. And we both found uh, a number of the things that we discovered in our research uh, quite, quite surprising. So I tell you what, uh, let's go ahead and move on to the next question. Jesse, if you want to take our next question here. Yeah. Um, so what in your mind is the most pressing social issue in America and in what ways has white Christian nationalism ignored, and I'll just say and or exacerbated the issue, because that's obviously both, I think. So yeah. go right ahead and take it, man. Um, God, so this, <laughs> I saw this question, and I was just like, oh, no, because um, I'm very much one of those people that I'm just like, I just want to like attack all, like 100% of the problems like all the time. Um, right. so like picking one or two pick out. Pick one. Yeah, exactly. One. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to pick one. I'm going to pick two. Okay, no worries. I'm going to compromise with you. Okay. Okay. I, I, I'll compromise. Um, honestly, I think what it really comes down to, I think the two biggest social issues are income inequality and healthcare access. Mm. And I think a lot of people might say like, well, what about like racial justice? Um, income inequality is racial justice. In many ways. Yeah. Um, it covers that and more. Yes. Um, and, you know, and it's not the whole picture. There's obviously a lot else going on there. But like, if we could just magically, like just tomorrow, solve income inequality, you would already be taking huge steps towards a lot of racial justice issues as well. Um, mm. Again, on top of so many other things. Uh, so I really see income inequality probably number one, um, but access to healthcare is, I think one of the most kind of underrated, even though everyone talks about it all the time. I, I genuinely think it's underrated as far as how it impacts Americans socially day to day. Um, I think the the lack of the lack of confidence in our own health and our own ability to be healthy is taking an enormous toll on the country, and that's both physical and mental health. And it's a financial aspect as well, because you know we have, I think it was something like sixty percent or more of bankruptcies in America are caused by healthcare yeah. bills. Yeah, it's it's a huge number. Yeah, and I think you you hit the nail on the head there for something really important too the the idea that fiscal justice or like reducing income inequality is a social issue. It is the racial justice piece. And I think that's important to point out because a lot of people I know say that, oh, I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative. I'm like, no, you're not because that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Mm. You can't not want social programs and also say you're socially liberal. Yeah. hundred percent. So as far as, you know, how has white Christian nationalism made these issues worse? really comes down to this, I mean, this rabid determination to connect right-wing economic policy with Christianity. Um, you know, this desire that like, no, even, again, again, they won't say this, but most of them do believe that, that wealth equals goodness. Um, and you see it. Um, I cannot tell you how many times. And they refuse to acknowledge the fact that through the legacy of redlining and gerrymandering and the low property taxes funding the public schools mm -hmm. puts 
many of these racial or minority population areas in this catch-22 situation where it's that much more difficult for them to succeed, to achieve the baseline quality of life that, you know, many white citizens in America just take for granted. And, you know, there are poor whites in America too, but they're being embraced (laughs) by the Republican Party in a way that poor minorities are being basically disenfranchised by the Republican Party. Yeah. Anytime anyone mentions poor white people, I'm just like shook by pained laughter um, because I worked construction um, for a few years while I was working on my second degree. And a little more context there, I was living in um, rural Western New York, Um, got my second degree from SUNY Brockport, fantastic school. um, But I was living in, politically speaking, the reddest county in New York State. Um, And I was working for a small construction company that did most of its work in that county and the even more rural county right below it. So most of my time working that was spent around um, middle class and lower rural white Americans, almost all of whom were like aggressively right wing. Aggressively Christian as well, I'm, I'm assuming. Interestingly, not necessarily. Um, okay. Actually, the guys I worked with were like pretty pointedly ah religious. Um, they really mm. didn't care. They weren't interested. Um, but they were very conservative socially, sure. culturally, politically, even if they didn't really care about going to church or, you know, directly espousing any particular Christian views. But something that struck me, um, you know, throughout that entire time working with them was how much all of these people that I was interacting with, like who are kind of middle class or lower class, um, you know, white people in rural Western New York had all bought into um, Republican talking points about social programs. Um, They were all convinced that these were like bad ideas. You know, there was very few exceptions. I remember like one time hearing a guy that I worked with be like, oh yeah, I'm all for universal healthcare. And like my brain almost exploded. um, Cause I was like, thank you. Um, But then he turned right around and was like, but I'm still voting Republican. Cause you know, this, that, and the other thing. And I was just like, "Uh, well, then you're never going to have universal healthcare. You've done this yourself. Um, And it is, it's this um, really this political self-harm that's occurring. Um, among those people, that they are very genuinely voting against their own interests. Now, for those listening who don't know me, um, I'll be very blunt. You know, I am obviously pretty left-leaning. I generally vote Democrat, um, but there's a strong argument that Democrats are causing a lot of these problems as well. That's a whole other can of worms to get into. So I just want to be clear. I'm not simping for the Democrats. (laughs) You're not trying to only trash on the Republicans without at least... Giving the Dems the, the credit that's due when it comes to oh, yeah. the issues. Yeah, yeah. We're generally kind of left-leaning as a podcast, but yeah. uh, we're, we're not afraid to criticize where criticism is warranted on the left. Yeah, so you want to throw that balance out there, but... Sure. Um, Fair and balanced. Fair and balanced. Yeah, I uh... Fair and balanced. I don't, I don't have to worship Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Thank you. All right. Anything else? Um... Circling back around to put the cap right. on that question, um, I think really this this foundational emphasis on conservative economic values, right wing economic values, and the determination to tie those to Christianity um, has, I mean, just murdered a lot of opportunities for like genuine positive social change in America, thanks to 
the conservative evangelical and white Christian nationalist movements. Right, right. Great answer. Um, so our next question here is, how does the phenomenon of white Christian nationalism relate to the growing issue of, well, I labeled it neo-fascism in, in the question here, but I think a better, more specific definition is palingenetic ultranationalism, which by any other terminology is fascism um, here in the U.S. How is the white Christian nationalist movement reinforcing this very racially motivated nationalism in, in America? Um, I'll be honest. I actually had trouble answering this question uh, because uh, the answer that I have come to is so simple. Uh, it's the same movement. Mm. It's the same yeah. movement. I mean, just fundamentally, it's not that it's like two different movements supporting each other. It's the same fucking movement. So, you know, we talk about white Christian nationalism. We talk about this idea of conformity um, socially, mm -hmm. culturally, religiously. They also want political conformity. They give a lot of lip service to freedom, to liberty. Uh, but fundamentally, they want conformity. Um, they want everyone mm -hmm. following the same path. Mm. Um and, you know, when I look at what they're doing, when I look at their interactions with, and I'm, I'm just going to go with neo-fascism, the, you know, question as written. When I look at their interactions with neo-fascism, um, I don't see two different groups. I see one group. Um, doesn't mean everyone in the group is that it's entirely homogenous, you know, right? There's, there's right. definitely some different uh, viewpoints, um, but it's, it's fundamentally one movement. I think um, one really clear connection that came to my mind, um, and, you know, I'm invoking Godwin's Law here. Right. All, all discussions <laughs> must ultimately return to Hitler. Uh, <laughs> he is the poster boy for fascism. Um, you look at what Hitler does in Germany in the 1930s with Christianity, um, and he brought Christianity right in to the Nazi party. Um, Hitler didn't give a shit about Christianity. Um, he's not a Christian. Uh, you know, you look at his own like writings and whatnot. He doesn't, he doesn't care about that. He's not interested in that. But he was very, very willing to use it. So even the guys in the genuine neo-fascism movement that are not Christians, you know, guys like um, Richard Spencer, guys like Jordan Peterson. I might get in trouble for saying Jordan Peterson's a fascist, <laughs> but there it is. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you, you look at those guys, they're not Christians. They don't claim to be Christians, but they are so very willing to use Christianity as part of their mm -hmm. toolkit to advance fascism. Right. Um, and for the white Christian nationalists, they're very comfortable being used in that way because fascism aligns with what they are doing, what they want to do, etc. Same movement. And I, I always find it interesting, ironic maybe, that the same group that is so vehemently against the idea of Sharia law <laughs> is the same group that wants to impose Christianity as a theological basis for law in America. Right. Yeah, it's it's almost like having people who think they're speaking for God run the country is a bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost like in every circumstance throughout history that this has happened, it's not Ooh. turned out well. Like there's this long period of history where the church was in charge of Europe, and I think we call it the Dark Ages. Yeah, for a reason. Yeah. Generally viewed poorly. Yes. Mm. <laughs> right. Uh, Jesse, go ahead and take the next question for us here. Yeah. Why do you think women make up a small majority of the groups that accept or advocate for white Christian nationalism in the U.S.? Um, 
so th this is one where I mean the moment you you know you're bringing in kind of this very clear gendered difference which is there right like statistically it's there um I I discussed this with my partner before you know putting down any like definite thoughts thinking through this question um and she said something that um, I'm going to almost directly quote her here. Sure. Because um, I think her response really hits the nail on the head. Um, Many women are socially conditioned to see loyalty as the most direct means to gain safety. And part of being a woman means being compelled to prioritize your own safety. Um, part of how I would explain that concept in simple terms is the idea of like going on a bad date. For a man, to be super clear, talking cisgender, heterosexual at the moment, um, you know, for a man going on a date and having like a bad date, like basically the worst that means is you got embarrassed, you felt bad, and she rejected you and laughed at you or something, right? Like that's a bad date for a man. A really like top end bad date for a woman is one where she gets fucking murdered. Mm. You know, we're, we're existing in two different worlds of experience here um, and so this idea of safety almost by necessity has to be this very high priority for women especially in our hyper patriarchal culture um, I mean really I shouldn't just say ours but any hyper patriarchal culture right personal safety has to be so much higher as a consideration mm. um, and so for many women you know, they're going to very aggressively back conservative evangelical Christianity and by extension, in many cases, white Christian nationalism um, because they have been socially conditioned to be loyal to a fault. Um, and they see this as a clear, defined role for them in which they are safe. So that's one perspective. Uh, now, this is obviously a big question, and I'll be the first to admit, I would love to hear some more perspectives on you know, what's happening there. Oh, yeah, I agree, because our podcast has largely been a sausage fest, Yeah, with the exception of a couple of, of female guests. But uh, yeah, I think this is an interesting mm -hmm. aspect of the conversation. And yeah, I would like to hear more views from, you know, the feminine side of the country on how they approach the situation and the issues. Yeah, um, just to give a little bit more context, you know, particularly uh, for Jesse and the listeners, um, my wife comes from a very similar background to me, kind of a, a similar um, mm -hmm. journey as far as like belief and faith goes, where both started in the very, very conservative, conservative evangelical movements, now, you know, pretty left leaning politically and socially, um, but still aff affirming Christianity. So yeah, she's in a similar position to me as far as that goes. Um, but yeah, she really connects it to this idea of loyalty and safety. Um, and that for many of them, um, and, you know, again, part of it's the messaging from the conservative evangelical church um, that, you know, if you, if you leave the church, if you, you know, if you stop conforming, then you are no longer safe. Um, now, that's often couched in very religious terms, right? Like, oh, you know, God will leave you, you know. You're no longer saved, but you're also no longer safe within that society or within that culture. Yeah, and especially when you consider the statistics around mm. spousal abuse, the statistics around sexual abuse. Um, you know, I mean, there's so many, you know, sexual abuse cases unfolding in the conservative evangelical church right now. Just to touch on that for a moment, that's what seems so counterintuitive to the whole thing with women being a majority of these groups that advocate or accept Christian nationalism is because, statistically speaking, there is 
a very large amount of spousal abuse, family abuse, sexual abuse within these groups. And it seems counter to this idea of them finding safety or feeling that they have safety within these groups. Yeah, so I, I can't actually directly address that. Um, sure. That is, that is actually a really good example of um, how damaging the whole culture of victim blaming has been. Mm. Um, this is actually something really, really interesting. And I don't want to go off on too long of a tangent here, but right, this is something right. I, could, I could kind of get, get into. Um, my personal favorite book of the Bible um, is the book of Job, which is not a popular choice. <laughs> mm. um, and one of the things I like about Job is that uh, one of the kind of the main themes of the whole book is that like um, you don't get to kind of control God. You don't get to like, like, you know, well, I did A, B, and C, so therefore, you know, make it rain, God. Um, and that's not even like an unusual interpretation. That's actually like a lot of conservative evangelicals would hear me say that, and they'd be like, yeah, that's a good interpretation. Um, the problem is that's not what conservative evangelicals actually teach about God. And so what many women in the conservative evangelical church are getting, like, information-wise, is that, no, no, if I do A, B, and C, then I'm going to be protected and when they see you know oh that woman you know was abused by the pastor you know that woman was beaten by her husband i, I think i see where you're going with this yeah there's very much like oh well she didn't do a b or c or she did it but her faith isn't strong enough to have earned god's favor or protection or yeah or insert victim blame here yeah um so it's this combination of this kind of um theology that sees God as someone that you like appease as someone that you, you know, you have to hit this certain criteria to be in the good team. Um, you combine that with a tendency towards feminine victim blaming. Um, and it's very easy for them to see those things and just kind of brush it off and just say like, Oh, well, that's not me. I'm doing a, B and C, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not part of that group. Right. So um, when I look at that question, I think something kind of similar, but I, I think there's, and I like, obviously I haven't done any research on it, so I don't know if there's like any actual data, but what I, what I think just from my own experience growing up in that kind of environment is in a lot of these conservative Christian churches, there's this like man should be the head of the household, traditional nuclear family sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And obviously it puts the wife at the bottom of the social ladder in the church hierarchy. So I wonder if in advocating for white Christian nationalism, the women who are doing so um, are doing it so that they can create lower classes that they would have power over. Yeah, and that, that's, that's a really interesting perspective because I, I would say, like, are they consciously doing that? Like, are they thinking, like, I want to have someone mm -hmm. underneath me? And I would say no, like, in almost every case. Like, that's not a conscious thought, right? That's... I think that's a really good example um, of like kind of vilifying a group when perhaps vilifying them isn't like the most accurate or healthiest approach. Um, so I don't think they're necessarily doing that consciously, um, but I, I don't think you're entirely wrong though, Jesse, because I think we see a ton of that throughout um, really, you know, the whole white Christian nationalist movement, right? Why is it the white Christian nationalist movement? Mm. Well, white Christian nationalist movement because they are maintaining a racial hierarchy. So I, I'm not sure that it's a conscious thing, but I think I would broadly agree, Jesse, that there is, that, that is a factor. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly how it would play out, you know, in any individual person's thinking, mm -hmm. but I, I think that's a, it's fair to say that's a factor. I mean, you see so much of that 
just with general racial issues throughout history. Mm-hmm. You know, white women were subservient to white men, but, you know, they mm-hmm. still supported because they had another group that they were over. So I think there's a connection there. Um, I, I would personally just want to be careful with it. I think it's the best way to put yeah, it. Yeah, and to clarify just a little bit, I don't, I don't mean like they're deliberately trying to make, like, a slave class underneath them. What I mean is more like not so much trying to do that consciously, but recognizing that if we win, our situation is going to improve to a certain degree. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, totally with you there. That's a great clarification. Yeah, I, I kind of see where it's going. So we, we touched on the white issue as, as establishing the racial hierarchy, where then the women in the Christian nationalist movements are safe in the idea that if the nationalism progresses to the point and becomes you know, the law of the land, then they as white Christian women will have kind of secured a place in the social hierarchy mm-hmm. that is still above the minority groups. Near the and, top. Yeah, near, near the right. top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, those are statistics and things that would be interesting to, uh, to delve into at some point, just to kind of clarify all of that. But that's okay. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and kind of sticking with the idea of women's issues to a degree here. Now that uh, Roe versus Wade has been overturned, what do you think will be the next wedge social issue used to motivate Christians to continue supporting Republican politicians? Um, so I'm going to sound kind of cocky here, but I don't think I know. Right. Uh, um, it's LGBTQ issues, which you probably know as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I say I know because it's already happening. Yeah. Ted Cruz recently, you know, made a very clear statement about that. Yeah. Yeah, there are just hammering it um this is something that you know obviously as i said earlier this is within the last decade that i um you know kind of got my head screwed on straight on these issues um this is you know now for my current position this is actually something that has become really really important to me because the school that i teach at in manhattan is an arts focused school um, with an enormous LGBTQ plus population. Um, I have at least one trans kid in every class I teach, um, often more than one. And so, you know, for me, just in the last couple of years, as I've, you know, really gotten into the, the school that I teach at and really gotten to know my students, um, this has become something where I'm able to see very, very clearly the impact that this is having not on, you know, big abstract cultural bullshit lines, you know, oh, what, what, you know, what does marriage mean anymore? You know, like none of that nonsense. I mean, like, yeah, not relating to the broad cultural trajectory of the country. Yeah. Like, but the very personal effects. Yeah. Who gives a shit? Yeah. I'm getting to see like what this is actually doing to kids. Um, and it's nightmarish. Um, now, you know, fortunately I'm in New York city, you know, I'm in one of the liberal strongholds. Um, right. So, you know, my kids aren't necessarily in like direct danger of being impacted by some of these policies, some of these ideas, but they're hearing it. They're seeing it. They're being subjected to the same stuff on the internet. And I mean, I want to say very clearly, you know, to anyone who is like conservative, who might be listening to this. Uh, bless you for, you know, sticking with us to this point. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I mean, I want you to very carefully consider, you know, when you go on the internet and you write about, like, these terrible trans people and how horrible and awful they are, 
please understand there are 13 and 14 year olds who are seeing those words and are contemplating suicide because of what you are saying. And that's the reality that I have to live with. Um, that, you know, my students are being subjected to this and it is directly demonstrably harming them. Right. But again, you know, kind of connecting to those earlier things, you know, growing up, I didn't know any LGBTQ plus people. I mean, I teach ninth graders. Um, when I was in ninth grade, literally, I don't think I knew a single, at least, you know, open out of the closet LGBTQ person, not a single mm -hmm. one that I can think of. And I think that's true of an unfortunately large number of conservatives. Now, right. in, in most cases, it is just that they don't know one that's out of the closet. Yeah. But um, there is a dehumanization that has happened. Mm. You know, they have very successfully fully othered the LGBTQ population, especially trans folks. Yeah. Um, and earlier this week, I had a conversation with a friend of mine in Oklahoma. Her name's Jessica, and she's very much the, the blue-haired social justice feminist archetype. And in that conversation, I was telling her, is like I was very kind of neutral about the whole trans situation or, or trans issues in America I didn't have strong opinions one way or the other. And then over the last couple of years, I had started watching videos on a couple of YouTube channels that were focused on, on philosophy and, and political issues. <laughs> I think I know one of them that you're referring to. <laughs> yeah. And over the course of the years, two of those YouTube personalities transitioned mm -hmm. and they talked about their experiences with gender dysphoria and the culture surrounding LGBTQ issues and it, you know, really opened my eyes to the point where I went from just being neutral, not really having a strong opinion one way or the other, to definitely being on board and advocating that they're absolutely worthy of the human rights that the rest of us enjoy. It shouldn't really be any question of social or moral debate in American culture. Yeah, um, I actually want to make a point here, um, connecting back to some of the other sure. things we've talked about, but since we're kind of on the, the issue of, you know, the, the treatment of LGBTQ folks, um, thinking through fascism, I think one of the really dangerous, poisonous aspects of current American fascism, neo-fascism, whatever you want to call it, is that like mm. almost none of them, I mean, it's an absolutely tiny group of like ex fringe extremists, um, none of them will admit that they're fascists. Right. Right. Like you, you go to like Nazi Germany and they're like, hell yeah, we're fascist. You know, like that was, you know, they embraced it. I mean, Mussolini, you know, he was very open. Um, and now they're all like, no, fascism is bad. No, that's what the other people do. Um, even while they're yeah. you know, just lining right up with every like fascist standard. Well, but the Nazis were socialist, remember, yeah. even though they blamed communists for the Reichstag fire. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> not going to get into convenient that. red herring for conservatives to... <laughs> Yeah. to refer to the Nazis as national socialists. So if you if you don't get that, let me put it another way. The people who attacked the Capitol building were Antifa, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's make it a little more current. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but the point I want to get at there, um, you know, they're very much saying like, no, we're not fascists. We're not fascists. Um, go through history. And especially, you know, right, you're like 1920s, 1930s fascists. But really, like most any like kind of totalitarian, violent movement throughout history, watch who they blame for society's problems. 
Now, there's a couple exceptions, right? Like your aggressive communist movements, uh, which had some very serious problems. You know, no one's out here saying that Stalin's the good guy. No. Right, no. Well, I shouldn't say no one, but none of us um, are saying Stalin's the good guy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but let's at least acknowledge the fact that we were willing to ally with the communists to yeah. <laughs> overcome sure. the threat of Nazism. So, yeah, for sure. You know. Um, but most violent totalitarian movements throughout history, a couple notwithstanding, um, one of the hallmarks is that they blame society's problems on the groups that actually have the least power, which when you actually break it down, makes no fucking sense, right? Because they also claim to be victimized by those same groups. Right. Like, you're looking at a group that doesn't have power, right? This is a group that is, like, marginalized. This is a group that is denied you know, basic rights. This is a group that is, you know, generally low socioeconomic status. That is, you know, insert any problem here, that group is dealing with it. And they say like, okay, that group that has no power, that is not like politically represented, etc. They are the ones who somehow mysteriously, despite having no power, are also the main problem. That's insane, right? The group with the least power cannot cause the most problems. That's impossible. That's not the way anything works throughout all of history. Because I think, I'm extrapolating a little bit here, but um, because those groups are, quote unquote, allowed to exist within their society, it's seen as being kind of a stain on the fabric of the culture or a threat to the purity of the groups that find themselves higher on the social hierarchy within the culture. Yeah. Somehow um... without these lower groups interfering, everything would just work as it's supposed to for the groups that are higher on the social hierarchy. Yeah, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a word in that we've been using for this whole discussion um, because you know we don't want to stay too much in like the Nazi terminology. Right, right. So I don't want to the word purity, conformity. Yes. Those groups are not conforming, right? And it's a uh, an ethnic conformity as well, in, in addition to you know uh, conformity around. Mm-hmm. Uh, social expectations or or moral guidelines. Now, yeah. uh, Jesse, I think you had something you wanted to add here real quick. Yeah, actually, I, I had it and then I lost it. Um, I would ask you, though, you have a degree in theology, correct? You said? Yeah. Yep. So um, let me ask the expert, what did Jesus say about trans people, about gay people, about gay marriage? Like, what was his stance on those issues? You already know what I'm going to say to this. <laughs> Of course, like, I'm not going to ask a question I don't already know the answer to, but as, as no, we no. have someone with the education in our midst, I would put it to you, what did Jesus say about gay people? Yeah, so, um, you know, very bluntly, the very obvious answer is he didn't. He didn't talk about it. Um, now, <laughs> actually, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. Just like, you know, what would a conservative evangelical person who's, like, educated, who can make an argument, respond to that? Um, the general response would be, well, if he didn't talk about it, then that probably means he's aligning with like the you know standard Jewish interpretation of the time, which would have been in alignment with the Old Testament, um, which generally seemed to condemn or at least warn against, um, and it really only talks about male-on-male homosexual behavior, uh, but seems mm-hmm. to condemn that, right? So that would be kind of like the standard response to that. Well, he doesn't talk about it, but that just means he aligned with their understanding. Um more broadly speaking, he doesn't speak on it, which is telling. Um, and when you actually look through most of Scripture, Old Testament mentions it arguably pretty clearly. But again, that's all connected to like their like highly ceremonial civil laws. Like right, and that's that's something that I wanted to kind of 
dovetail into this yeah. is, you know, they, they talk about Christ fulfilling certain laws um, in the New Testament. So um, which of the civil, ceremonial, and moral laws were fulfilled by Christ in the evangelical worldview? Yeah, so... Um... So I'm actually not going to directly answer that question because that question actually is really only applicable to a conservative evangelical interpretation of Scripture. And how they would try to argue it is they would say he fulfilled the civil ceremonial, not the moral. The moral doesn't change, right? Okay. Which, like, really abstractly, I would kind of agree with that. Um the problem there is which ones are moral, which ones are civil ceremonial, because it's just mashed potatoes. Exactly, because that seems to be the source of the debate about LGBTQ issues is whether or not the stance of the Bible on LGBTQ issues, which type of law, you know, that fits under within the mm-hmm. the context of the Old yeah. Testament. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and so that's one where, like, I think anyone who's, like, even referring to the Old Testament, even if they're, like, a, a conservative evangelical, you know, literalist, like if you're referring to the Old Testament to support those arguments, you're just you're just off in crazy land. It's like not even worth discussing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the New Testament does speak lightly about it. I mean, there's it's literally we're talking like two verses really like speak with any clarity. And the problem is if you actually look at historical context for those verses, suddenly everything becomes far more muddy than conservative mm-hmm. evangelicals want to make it out to be. Um, one of the very popular ones. Um, Oh, and I'm blanking on the exact verse. Uh, but one of the most popular ones, it's a, one of the letters from the Apostle Paul where he's talking about, you know, and like men will give up, you know, proper relations with women and turn to other men. Um, the city he's writing to when he does that actually was known for a couple of very specific cults that engaged in like public, public sex acts, very simply, as parts of their like their processions, parts of their parades and whatnot. Um, and when you actually study, like, the historical context, like, what would the people in that city, like, hear? Like, when he uses some of those phrases, what would those people internalize? Um, and then you look at, okay, what's happening with those cults? Like, literally at the same time that Paul is writing this letter, suddenly, like, all of his wording there starts to sound a lot more like he's talking about those cults than about anything else. Yeah, people in general or so- right, society exactly. in general. Um so there's virtually nothing in the Bible that's actually clear saying like, this is bad or this is good. Um, and that's where for me, you know, as a person who is a Christian, you know, I look at that and I'm like, okay, so none of this is clear. So I shouldn't be making my final moral judgment based on the text here. You know, like the Bible's pretty fucking clear that murder's bad. Don't murder people. Right. Um, in fact, you can make it, you can make a much stronger argument for pacifism from Christianity than anti-LGBTQ views from Christianity. Mm-hmm. I'm not a pacifist, but, you know, I recognize the arguments there. Um, <laughs> right. And so for me, you know, that's where it kind of returns to what I mentioned earlier with like that experience of looking like, okay, so is that like anti-LGBTQ interpretation actually helping people? And no, it very clearly is not. So it's a pretty obvious conclusion to me. Right. I think that's a very good way to look at it is, is judging the effects that it has on people like you were talking about knowing them from their fruits is like is the application of this interpretation of this line of scripture is it having beneficial results in people's lives or is it having negative effects Mm -hmm. on these people's lives and if god is you know all-knowing all-loving and wants us to thrive 
then obviously whatever the most beneficial outcome is probably more in line with God's desires than um, however people are interpreting certain lines of scripture and then maybe applying their own prejudices to it and informing action based on those interpretations. Yeah, Um, kind of a, a simple way that I would often put it, you know, again, for any Christians listening, we all have to recognize that our interpretation is our interpretation, right? It's our human limited understanding. Humans are finite. We only have so much understanding, we're going to get things wrong. So if we have an interpretation and it's clearly harming people, we have to re-examine. Mm. That's it. Now, Jesse, was there anything else to add there? Kind of a tangential sort of question related to um, like the difference between the moral and the civil law, because the, I was taught a very specific way to delineate the two. And what I was taught was that the Ten Commandments were the dividing line, right? That anything that relates to the Ten Commandments was what they derived as their moral law, and anything that was related to ceremony or like the general upkeep of society, like the food laws or the, the mixing the fabrics and things like that, that those were what were considered the um, the ceremonial or the civil law, and that how we determined that it was only the um, the civil or the ceremonial law that was fulfilled by Jesus was that passage in Peter where he's shown all those animals and God says, why aren't you eating? He said, go kill and eat. I've made these clean for you. Do you think within your theological perspective, is that a reasonable interpretation or would you differ from that? Um, I think that's reasonable. Um, again, you know, returning to kind of like my early statement, the discussion of like how I interpret the Bible is that, you know, it's mm. not like direct hundred percent inerrant words of God. It's, you know, mm-hmm. people recording their interactions with God. Um, but I, I think that's reasonable, but even there, you know, the 10 commandments just says, don't cheat on your spouse. Mm-hmm. That's the extent of its comment on sexual activity and again that's like a standard that most people are pretty comfortable with like yeah don't cheat on the person you've made a commitment to you know that's that's not like a super and and really when you think about it that's pretty gender neutral yeah don't cheat on your spouse (laughs) yeah that's one of those moral standings that like Mm. there's a really small number of people that are going to take issue Mm. with that idea right um so yeah, so I, I think that's reasonable. Um, I wouldn't be interested in getting in a fight with someone who, you know, who kind of gave that interpretation. Um, Biblical Smackdown fight. <laughs> 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 so uh, yeah, like I think that's reasonable, but it's, you know, again, it's not something that I think is, is worth uh, spending a lot of time and energy on. And because so many different sects of Christianity have so many interpretations of the minutia of the text that informs Mm -hmm. their very specific view of the religion as Mm -hmm. a whole you know one one sect is gonna look at that and say you know jesse's interpretation is correct one sect is gonna look at that and say Mm -hmm. gabe's interpretation is correct and another sect is gonna look at it and say you're both wrong so (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. it's a little different fighting over that yeah, it, I was just curious if you got it fed you the same way I did, and I think that's a really interesting doctrinal point, that's all. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I, I honestly, Jesse, once you mentioned that, I think I actually was taught that as well at some point. Um, but again, which ones align with which, it's mm. it's kind of mm-hmm. still mashed yeah. potatoes, even when you're trying to right. use that standard. So, yeah. All right, um, Jesse, let's go ahead with the next question here. 
Um, yeah, so what effects would ending church-state separation in favor of the Christian majority have on the daily lives of American citizens, both Christian and non-Christian? Uh, shotgun answer, you have 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so actually I, I can make this pretty quick. Um, I'm going to start with Christian. For mm-hmm. conservative Christians, almost nothing about their lives would change because yep. they're already in a position of cultural power. Mm. Um, basically the only thing that would change is they would feel like, oh, we won and they wouldn't necessarily be like fighting about those things quite as much anymore because those things would now be, you know, aligning with them legally. Um, yeah, we might see them become more complacent, I guess. Yeah, if anything, perhaps. that would probably be the change for them. Mm-hmm. Um, there wouldn't be much. They're already living their lives basically the way they'd be living their lives if there was no separation of church and state. Um, for non-Christians, especially, you know, right, like more leftist, more liberal people, um, you would definitely expect that, like, religion would start to intrude very directly on your life. Prayer in schools, no abortion accessibility, uh, the possibility of, like, mandatory Bible classes in K-12 through education, I think would be an almost instant thing in that scenario, which, again, wouldn't really be a big change for Christians. They're already doing that through, like, youth groups and Sunday school and all that. So it's just a slight venue change for them. Um, probably see changes to laws having to do with marriage and sexuality, you know, broadly speaking. Um, so I think you would see quite a few changes for like non-Christians, especially more leftist folks. Now the irony is everything that I just listed are already things that Christians are trying to make happen in some cases successfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of those wild things where, conservative evangelicals really like to harp on freedom and liberty and everyone can, you know, do what's right for them. So long as, you know, it aligns with the constitution or whatever they might like to say, but in reality, you look at the actual practice of what they're doing. They are actively trying to break down the separation of church and state. They have been for decades and decades. Right. Well, what about for apostates like myself and Jesse? Um, how would it change for you? Yeah. Um, I think it would really, um, you know, very much be in line with like kind of having a degree of religion forced on you. I don't, I'm not actually convinced that they would necessarily like force conversions. Um, I think that's something that even in those circles is still kind of seen as like, especially given like Protestantism, you know, and kind of the Mm. background that a lot of American Protestants came to America genuinely, at least partially because they were being attacked by the Catholic church. So I think there's still a lot of like aversion to forced conversion there because there's like a genuine cultural background there for Protestants. So I don't think anyone would put a gun to your head and make you swear on the Bible that, you know, you're a Christian now, but you would 100% expect that, yeah, your kids are going to be like praying in school. Your kids are going to have to go to a mandatory Bible class. You know, if they had their way, if they could just dictate everything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That would be reality. Well, and not to put too fine a point on it, but, uh, you know, we've in some of the previous episodes discussed a little bit of some of these more extreme fundamentalist Christians, you know, calling for, you know, the execution of homosexuals mm-hmm. um, or even the execution or ostracization or alienation of atheists and apostates or people of differing religions. So as they gain more power and more influence, I worry that we're going to see them in historical fashion, take the reins of power and run with it because they'll be able to to dictate societal mores or societal changes that fit with their more extreme 
uh, worldviews. Yeah. No, and I, I think that's a really legitimate concern, 100%. And I feel like I would be less concerned if it was just a general movement to realign U.S. laws in a way that better conforms to you know, the ideas of Christian morality. But because it's tied to this growing neo-fascist movement, I feel like they're going to gain the authority to enforce conformity to their extremist views, and they might even resort to using violence to do so. Yeah, definitely. So this guy, Ralph Drollinger, uh, he's an American clergyman in the Capitol <laughs> Ministry and was the former leader of Trump's White House Bible Study Group. Now, he claims there's no scriptural justification for state welfare programs. Uh, do you agree or disagree? <laughs> um, so we've already kind of talked about this. Yeah. Um, this is a two-part answer. Um, number one, scriptural justification for state programs is fucking irrelevant. Um, here, quick question. Do you have, are you like bleeping? If you prefer, then, oh, no, then no, no, I can no. add I, a bleep just, in there. No, I just, <laughs> I just don't want to create more editing work for you. Oh, no, no. We tag the podcast as explicit, All right, so cool, we're, cool. we're able to, to – we're not censoring any free speech here. Let's put it that way. <laughs> we're proudly profane. Proudly profane. Right. Cool, That's cool. That's a great way to put it. Just wanted to double-check that before I kept going. Um, mm. Yeah, it's irrelevant um, because we aren't in a theocratic society. That's the only mm. world in which that matters, is if you're in a fully theocratic society. Now, when saying that is really just like a lovely, you know, Freudian slip um, of what he actually mm. wants. He wants a theocratic society. He wants a society in which he could, you know, be designing laws based on his interpretation of the Bible. Um, so that statement is more a reflection of his desires than of reality. Um, mm. So... In our government, as it currently functions, that should be completely irrelevant. Um, so him saying that is kind of a joke to begin with. Now, obviously, that whole group is trying to make it relevant. So that's a problem. Uh, which brings me to my answer, which I've kind of already, you know, answered. Like, you yeah. guys, by this point, you, you know what my answer is going to be. Um, but what absolutely kills me about this is that there is a justification. Um, in fact, it even goes beyond Jesus. Um, there's a really simple argument, especially for someone who takes a more literal, inerrant interpretation of the Bible. Um, how does God set up his, like, quote-unquote, perfect ancient society? You know, when you look mm. at ancient Israel, when you look at, like, ancient Judaism, um, how does he set up society? And you actually look at the specific economic social laws created. There are built-in laws about how to gather wheat about how to like clean up after yourself after like processing the wheat. Um, there's all these built-in laws that are literal social welfare nets. Um, easy example, they weren't supposed to harvest the corners of their fields. Like basically when you're like going through with a scythe, you're supposed to make like kind of a rounded turn, right? Like you've got like a nice right angle at the corner of your field, you make a mm. rounded turn and you leave the corner there. And the whole point of that was that the poor, especially like widows and orphans, could then go and hand pick their own wheat from your field. Like you just left those corners open for them. That's what was commanded in those ancient laws. Sounds like a violation of America's private property rights right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I grew this wheat. I earned it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so like both teachings of Jesus, right, where he literally says things like sell all your belongings and give them to the poor. Now, that is kind of an extreme scenario. He's dealing with a specific mm. person in that case. 
Um, but, you know, but that's still kind of a theme for all of Jesus' stuff. You know, he talks about, like, giving to the poor, caring for the poor, making sure that the, the needy have what they need, watching over widows and orphans. Healing the sick. Yeah. Um, even beyond the direct words of Jesus, you look at some of the later, um, like, letters from different apostles. Uh, the book of John, one of the opening lines is, true religion is caring for widows and orphans. The least advantaged in society, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at... Um, Oh man, I'm I'm blanking on a couple of passages I'd want to reference, but are you uh, maybe thinking of whatsoever you do under the least of these? Is that what um, you're you're digging for? That's a, that's another great example. I think that is another direct words of Jesus case. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but you just have so many examples, both Old Testament and New Testament, of like like God clearly wanting social welfare nets in place. Um, so the idea that there's no scriptural justification for social welfare is absolutely fucking bogus. Like, you're not reading the same Bible that I am. Um, I had a conversation with a libertarian um, some time ago about this, and I made that exact same argument to him that you just made now, and his response was, those commandments from Jesus were to individuals, not to the state. And I think that's the difference in interpretation that this guy in, that we referenced in the question is getting at. That's a great yeah. way to kind of slink out of that. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. As only libertarians with their ultra-personal responsibility <laughs> mindset could right, justify. Yeah. 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 Libertarianism um, isn't like institutionalized selfishness at all. No. <laughs> no overlap there. Um, so talking to a libertarian, I would actually just go right in on the Old Testament. That when God set up the society that God wanted, that God designed, according to that you know, conservative interpretation of the Bible— God set up a society with clear social welfare. Both of those are great examples, whether it's, yeah. it's the societal organization yeah. or, or targeting individuals who have the wealth and have the means and encouraging them to also support social welfare for the disadvantaged of society. I think both of those arguments seem to be very clear cut in what you guys are describing here. And yeah, yeah I think that totally debunks this idea yeah. top to bottom. I would... Firmly, firmly argue that. Great. Yeah. And, you know, we could get into the whole, like, you know, the state is an expression of the individuals that live within it. So if the individuals are called to be generous and care for the poor, they should be designing a state which aids them in that. Um, that's, but sure. that's, you know, that's a whole other tangent. Mm. Now, um, in our episodes where we were discussing uh, Greg Locke mm. in, in particular, um, he makes some very specific statements that the holy figures of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, were very political in the things that they spoke about, the actions that they advocated. And this kind of connects to the next question here, um, because obviously we have individuals in the Christian nationalist movement expressing these ideas, but which aspects of scripture advocate for Christians to interfere or not interfere with the operations of state? Almost none of them. Uh, it doesn't talk about it. That is the fundamental mm. thing. Like, well, let's actually, we'll break it apart. So let's talk Old sure. Testament for a second, right? Old Testament is literally describing a theocratic environment, right? So as soon as you're looking at that, you kind of have to understand, like, okay, this is a theocratic environment. Like, it's not talking about modern Christian church, right? Um, so saying, like, oh, well, you know, King David was literally a king, so he's very political. Well, yeah. It's a monarchical theocracy. You know, inspired by divine right as well. God wants him to be king. So. Of, of, of course he's political, right? Like, so that, mm. that's, that's almost just like a tautology. 
you know, mm. like he's political because he's political. Sure. Yeah. Like that's not really relevant for us. Um, so this is actually a case where like, I think most sensible people would really kind of focus more on the new Testament as far as like making an argument here. Um, and the new Testament is pretty pointedly apolitical. Um, I would argue the most political statement or the most clearly political statement in the new Testament is um, Jesus saying, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, um, which can broadly be interpreted to mean like, be a good citizen, pay your taxes, keep your head down, you know? Um, now, how about Romans 13, like, you know, obeying the laws of society? Yes, thank you, thank you. I knew there was another one. Because that's another one that, that Greg Locke liked to refer to when it suited him and then tried to, to distance himself yep. from when it, yep. it didn't suit him. Yeah, because all Romans 13 is really saying is, like, follow the law, be a good citizen, right? Like, it's, mm. it's, pretty, it's pretty simple. There's not, like, a lot of, like, mega complex stuff going on there with Romans 13. Um, and again... This is if you're, like, taking everything in, like, a very literal, very, like, direct, unquestionable word of God sense. But even in right. that interpretation, it's saying follow the law, be a good citizen. That's not, like, that crazy or, you know, out of this world. And that's not really, a, like, a huge political statement. Mm. Now, to be a little more nuanced, right, we want to understand that in some sense almost everything is political, um, my principal, um, like head of my school actually has a poster in his office that I just love. And I'm probably going to try to find it when I move into administration myself down the road. Um, it's very simple. It's just a poster that says every poster is a political poster. Um, <laughs> and really representative of this idea that like everything we're expressing has political connections. You know, those, those people who are like, oh, well, I'm not really right. into politics. Well, yeah, you are. You just don't realize it you're in the middle of politics you just choose not to like rock the boat or to engage in a meaningful way yeah 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 you're you're affected by whether or not you choose to engage exactly mm. um and so in that sense we can absolutely see and this is where you know i kind of mentioned early on like i would argue that you know the bible gives a clearer argument for kind of more leftist um social political standards that the clearer messages of the Bible are things like care for the poor, care for the needy. Um, you know, they often use the words like widows and orphans because, you know, in that cultural mm. context, they were the poor and the needy. Um, so you see, you know, a lot of these broad statements, these broad ideas in the text that when it's not talking about just like your own personal, like spiritual journey, when it's talking about any kind of broader social thing, it's talking about caring for people. So, you know, if we want to say, like, okay, like, what political applications can we get from this, recognizing that in some sense everything is political, I would argue the pretty clear applications are kind of more to the leftist end of things. Um, mm. You know, should people have individual responsibility? Yes, virtually everyone agrees with that statement. That doesn't mean punishing them for being poor. <laughs> right, right. right. And I guess um, really a, a way that I just thought of to kind of drive the point home that you just made, um, there's a lot of stories of like Jesus healing people and, and bringing uh, like bringing Lazarus back from the dead and all of this. And I'm just wondering if anyone in your theological education, they mentioned like what his bill of sale was for that. Like, did, did he ask for insurance up front before <laughs> he healed someone? Or um, did, 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 did he, did he like, was that like making a house call? Did he leave a bill? Did you, did you pay afterward? Like, how did that work? Yeah, what was I, his copay? I'm, I'm pretty sure it was crowdfunded. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> very, very nice. I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Very good. Very good answer. <laughs> um, but no, but honestly, there is kind of a sub point there that's important, though. Because, you know, Christians talk about, like, be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? I mean, you know, the classic 90s. You yeah, know, yeah. The, I, I had those, man. The bracelet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, what would Jesus do? Jesus would heal people without demanding payment. Mm. There's a controversial statement for you. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's just across the board. Like, I, I think it's far clearer to make an argument for leftist social policy from the Bible. Care for people, do no harm. And that's really just the moral philosophy of the scripture. That's not in any way a specifically political statement. That's just if we want to build a society around the biblical moral philosophy, then that's the type of society that we would build according to a more literalist interpretation of the scripture, which obviously is is far removed from the type of society that seems to be advocated for by the white Christian nationalist movement. Yeah, which again, connects to like that very early statement I made where like, I, from my point of view, I really see it as a co-opted religion. Right, right, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse, how about the, the next question here? Oh yeah, of course. Um, so... In what ways is the white Christian nationalist movement specifically anti-democracy in its short-term and long-term agendas, do you think? This one, I think, is fairly straightforward, you know, in line with many other responses I'm giving here. A lot of what I'm saying is kind of your stock 30-year-old leftist stuff, Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, I'll be honest. Um, But, I mean, short-term, white Christian nationalism is very clearly anti-democracy in that they are determined to use any means necessary to achieve their socio-cultural goals. Whether that means, you know, leaning heavy on the Electoral College, which is anti-democratic, if anyone's being honest. (laughs) Whether, you know, that means, you know, using the Supreme Court to get what they want, you know, maybe lying their way onto the Supreme Court so that they can, you know, enact policies that are contradictory Mm. to what they said in their statements. Mm -hmm. Um, Am I being too specific? Yeah, but I mean... But just fundamentally, you know, they're pushing for things that they know are not supported by the majority of Americans, and they don't care. Mm. I mean, it's not arguable. The majority of Americans want abortion to be accessible, at least in some sense, right? Um, A majority of Americans want gay marriage to remain legal, you know, like, just across the board. There's so few things where a majority of Americans are actually, like, aligning. In agreement on, yeah. Mm-hmm. And obviously, because if it is a majority of Americans, that by its definition must be in some way bipartisan as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so it's just across the board. They're just using any means necessary to push through everything. I mean, honestly, like the biggest short term concern for me is the Supreme Court case that's going on right now where they and I don't remember all the proper legal terms. So basically where they're considering handing all electoral power to state legislatures. Yeah, um, yeah, I heard about that mm-hmm. recently. And of course, in these state legislatures, you know, you have so many of these Trumpist grassroots politicians yep. um, who are committed to the stop the steal. The 2020 election was rigged nonsense. You know, Trump wasn't able to steal the election through many of his public and private efforts, apart from January 6th itself. But, you know, they're steadfastly installing loyalists who 
can and will, if this case goes through, have the power to subvert the will of the people. And that's a very big short-term concern, I agree. Yeah. And honestly, that kind of segues into the long-term concern. Um, Because the problem is, if they're able to lock it into law where state legislatures have total electoral control of federal elections, which is, you know, that is the big, big question at the moment. um, At that point, the Republicans basically own the country because they control a majority of state legislatures, thanks to, you know, the way states are set up, the, you know, population dispersion, gerrymandering and and mm. yeah, and gerrymandering, especially. Um, so in that scenario, they have a shot at essentially just taking over and just denying Democrats any win. And that's the biggest concern for me currently. And that kind of is short term moving into long term. Um, mm. And again, you know, really long term, if they're successful, then that just swings right back around to that earlier question of, you know, what happens uh, if separation of church and state is broken down. Right. Well, but but. Conversely, you know, if if that becomes the case where, you know, the the state legislatures are given direct control over the electoral process in the states, um, at least for the federal level, wouldn't that also suggest that if Democrats could mobilize to the degree to then replace those state legislators, then it would basically secure Democrat rule in the same way? Because theoretically, you know, the majority of the American population more aligns with what we consider leftist, liberal, or, or yeah. uh, Democrat values than the Republican agenda. So Yeah. Um, theoretically, yes. The problem is that when you actually crunch the numbers and just the way mm. gerrymandering has got everything set up, it's almost right. impossible for that to happen. Um, I think that's what they're counting on, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you look at places like, um, I think it's Wisconsin. Um, In Wisconsin, they regularly send Democratic senators to Washington. They regularly elect Democratic governors because it's the whole state, just like voting as one giant block. Mm. Um, But for their state legislature, it's heavily Republican controlled because of gerrymandering. Um, And that also applies to the state court there in Wisconsin. Um, So the really nasty problem that they've encountered is that now the state legislature is just like running amok doing whatever the fuck it wants because it controls Mm. the legislature and the court. And they just have this like kind of impotent democratic governor who is just kind of like doing his best to veto whatever he can. Um, But, you know, his hands are tied. Yeah. Democratic impotence, I think, is a great way to describe (laughs) the last 20 years or so of American politics. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 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 So, Gabe, in your opinion, who was or uh, currently is the most influential white Christian nationalist? So I found this question so interesting um, because there isn't one. There's no single figure. Um, And there's a couple of reasons for that. And the first one, which um, I just think is wild, is that you really kind of have a little bit of a French Revolution mentality going on where you've got this like weird set of like idealist principles that everyone has to like hold to, right? Like, Mm. um, you know, we we would often use a a term like Trumpism currently, like how well are they espousing Trumpism? Um, And the hilarious thing is that even Trump himself doesn't always espouse Trumpism the way that people want him to. You know, there's been one or two times where he like tried to kind of be like, oh, I came up with a vaccine. I should get credit for the vaccine. Like vaccines are good. Um, And the crowd booed him. Because, like, (laughs) pro-vaccine is so against Trumpism at the moment. Um, 
you know, so you, so you just have hilarious instances like that. But part of what is happening, therefore, is that you have, and this is why I mentioned the French Revolution, you have this bizarre thing where, like, oh, Citizen Robespierre is now in charge of the council. And then two months later, no, no, Citizen Robespierre is going to the guillotine. It's some other guys in charge of the council, right? And they're just, like, cycling because, you know, how well are you espousing Trumpism, not just in, you know, its current form, but in the next form that it's going to take because it's shifting so rapidly. Mm. Um, so I don't think that there's like a single person. I think it's really ping-ponging between a bunch of people. Trump himself, even though he's really not a Christian in any sense of the term. In some sense, in one of our earlier episodes, when we were discussing the characteristics of the Antichrist as listed in the Bible, right. <laughs> we came to the conclusion that you could do worse than Trump as far as embodying those characteristics. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's, he's not a Christian in any, like, reasonable, you know, interpretation mm. of the, the term, the identity. Um, but he, he's genuinely, like, one of the top figures of white Christian nationalism at the moment because he claims Christianity. Right. And... All the people that are embracing that... He panders to. Yeah, he's pandering to it, and they want him to be, so they accept it, regardless of whether right. or not there's any actual evidence that he is following this religion. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to, you know, the idea of the meritocracy of wealth. You know, he's interpreted as being wealthy and successful, so therefore he must in some way have God's blessing. He must be good. Yeah. Yes, right. yes. Yeah, and that's like that's like the moment that I knew Trump was gonna win. It back is late twenty late twenty fifteen, early twenty sixteen. The moment that I knew Trump was gonna win was when he was talking at Liberty University and he said two Corinthians, not second Corinthians, and not a fucking person on all of Liberty University's Southern Baptist campus said shit to him about it. And I yep. was like, Oh yeah, these people are gonna bend the knee for sure. Yep. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Um so, yeah, there, there's no one person. I jotted down, like, a couple. I mean, Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, right. Though Jerry Falwell Sr. obviously, like, was one of the founding fathers of white Christian nationalism in, in a real sense. Um, in the moral majority, yeah. Yeah, Jerry yeah. Falwell Jr. has been huge. He's kind of fallen out of favor now because he got caught doing something he shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> oh, the pool boy? Yeah. Well, his wife got caught doing something. Yeah. Someone. Well, he was covering it up. Um, which again, you know, just right. shows like the the wild hypocrisy and irony that like Trump can do that all day long, and they just kind of look the other way. But Jerry Falwell does it, and he's in trouble. You know, so it's just mm. it, it's there's no consistency there. You don't say. Um, but like Jerry Falwell, um, Bob Jones Senior was like a huge one he mm -hmm. was right in line with like Falwell and all those guys in many ways um there's a, really a lot of like current kind of like seminary heads in conservative evangelicalism guys like Al Mohler who really can kind of give this um are you familiar with that name at all Jesse no actually that's I'm raising my eyebrows because I haven't heard of these okay, people. okay I'm very interested in what you're saying here yeah He's just kind of like one example of many. Mm. Um, but like Al Mohler, I actually haven't like paid close attention to him super recently, so I'm not positive exactly where he's at right now. But he has been for the last like couple decades. He's been one of the main figures mm. in like the Southern Baptist um, seminary circles because they've got a couple like major seminaries around the country. Uh, he was president of one of them. I think it was it might have just been Southern Baptist Seminary, like one of the main branches. Um, but he's, he's been one of those like really like prominent, like kind of theologians, pastors, seminary heads for a couple decades now. And guys like him have actually been really instrumental because they won't fully embrace white Christian nationalism. 
partially because they're true believers in Christianity, right? Like a guy like Al Mohler is like, I, I fully believe that he believes in what he's doing. Like he's not a guy who's like playing the game, right? So they won't fully embrace it, right? Like Al Mohler's not going to come out and, you know, be like Richard Spencer is my buddy, you know, like Al Mohler would mm -hmm. condemn Richard Spencer, like without hesitation. The problem is that he's still going to fight that culture war line still going to post op-eds saying like, now I know he's not perfect, but I really think you folks should vote for Trump. So I think a lot of guys like him have actually been really instrumental, even though very technically they actually don't quite fit white Christian nationalism. But they lend some broader theological legitimacy mm -hmm. to the movement by, you know, espousing their agreement with the specific culture war issues that have been focused on by the political right as influenced by the religious right in the feedback loop that we discussed earlier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the same kind of role that like Francis Schaeffer had in the moral majority movement, like back in the seventies and eighties is what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like a really interesting one. Cause again, Schaeffer is one of those guys who actually wasn't like really right wing. Um, but like he kind of had some impact on that and gave some legitimacy, some intellectual backing to it. So yeah, no, that's, that's a great example. Um, so it's these guys who aren't fully in that like dangerous camp, but they're legitimizing it. Mm. Now I do want to pause there because I put something in my notes sure. that I, I do also want to emphasize here just to be like very fair to all parties, um, that mm. there are a few prominent Christian writers, thinkers, even like one or two guys who are like kind of at those like high level seminary, like head positions who are actually pretty pointedly calling out white Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. um, some guys, I don't know. Have you heard of um, like Russell Moore? I have not. No. Russell Moore. Um, he was in some really prominent positions. He's actually been pushed out because he like, he would never give an inch on Trump like the whole time. And, and you know, Russell Moore is someone that I strongly disagree with on many issues. Mm. he's one of the few that I still have like a little bit of respect for because even though I would disagree with him on so many things, he was someone who would say like, no, like Christianity stands for, you know, the gospel of Jesus. It stands for helping people. It stands for, you know, those ideas. It's amazing how the willingness to embrace Trumpism has become such a reliable litmus test. Yes, exactly. In that sense. Yeah. So Russell Moore like has been pushed out of a lot of the circles that he used to be a prominent voice in because he refused to pass that litmus test, because he was like really aggressive in saying like, this is not okay. This is like a perversion of Christianity. Um, so there are a few guys like that. And I want to give them a little credit. And that's exactly why when we did the episodes here, we very specifically put it right in the title of the episodes. It was yeah. not all Christians <laughs> because that was very much not only a reference to kind of some of the yeah. woke culture thing, you know, the not all men or yeah. blah, blah, blah <laughs> stuff. But it is, it is exactly the case where right. it should be stated up front that when Jesse and I were expressing our moral and ethical and theological criticisms of the movement, that it was specifically focused on what we consider to be dangerous and destructive and anti-democratic mm -hmm. movements within the very specific Christian right political sphere in, in American society and not a condemnation of the entire Christian religious community in America because it's not fully embraced by the totality of American Christianity. Yeah. 
an even finer point. It's not even fully embraced by all like conservative evangelical true. Christians. True. Um, and that, that's really the point I want to make there. Cause we'll talk mm. about like the broader Christianity in the next question, but even within like the very genuinely conservative branch, there's still kind of a, a minority there who's trying to fight for a more true, pure Christianity. Um, and again, I, strongly disagree with them on many points, but like they do get a little respect because they are sticking to their guns and refusing to bend the knee to Trump and that entire movement. And, mm. you know, good for them, frankly. I, I really do think in a, in a real way that the white Christian nationalist movement and the co-opting of the evangelical circles and all that, like, I think it really is really just a well-organized minority. I, I don't think that they're really representative of the broader current of Christianity in the country. I really don't. Yeah, I think it started as a well-organized minority. I fear that we're reaching a point where it may be becoming like a genuine majority, at least in the conservative evangelical circles. Mm. As soon as you leave those circles, not at all. Mm. But like in those circles, I fear that it is becoming the genuine majority thanks to the propaganda, the media pushes, you know, everyone listening to talk radio every afternoon. So I fear that it's becoming something different. But I think you're absolutely right, Jesse, that like, when we look at this, again, we just really want to understand this is like a specific movement being pushed by specific people. With specific agendas, yeah. Yeah, that is not fully embraced, not only just by all Christians, but even by all Christians within you know, kind of the movements closest to it. And I think, I think again, it's just something for fairness and accuracy. We always want to keep that in mind. Sure, yep. Yeah, and we discussed the uh, statistics as well, um, the study that was done by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. They pulled Christians in America and broke them down into the four levels of tolerance or acceptance of the Christian nationalist movement in America, which clearly demonstrates that, you know, this is a very influential group of people but it's in no way representative of the entire spectrum of of christianity in america yeah. um now gabe did you have any other particular individuals that you wanted to point out in relation to the question here um no um i will okay. note actually i found the whole thing around greg Locke really interesting yeah i was gonna ask if you had any particular things about greg Locke in relation to the episodes that jesse and i did yeah, I actually don't, because I literally just learned about Greg Locke, like, three months ago. Mm. Like, shortly before you first contacted me about coming onto the podcast, um, I'd heard about him kind of in passing. So it's really interesting, because he's, like, the perfect example of, like, the most frighteningly toxic, you know, end mm. of this. Someone calling for just direct violence against people who are different, people who are other from himself and people like him. Um but he's genuinely, like, he has no influence, like, very broadly speaking, in conservative evangelicalism. Like, he has influence over his church and maybe, like, a couple of, like, like-minded churches. But, like, the people that I went to, my very first college that I went to that was, like, a Christian institution, like, none of those people, frankly, most of them probably don't even know who he is. But if they do know who he is, like, I can just guarantee you, no one that I know from there would be like, oh, yeah, you know, like, you know, I think he's got some good points. They'd all be like, no, that man's crazy. Um, yeah. Well, that's that's good news, at least, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that level of extremism is genuinely still fringe. Um, now, right. legitimate concern that it may be moving away from fringe, but for the moment, it is still fringe. Yeah, we chose to focus on him just because he's, I think, a great example of how 
these people who are fringe can take advantage of social media platforms to spread their very particular ideologies. And I think he probably overinflates his sense of his own influence because he says that various of his videos have gotten so many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of views. But when I was going through the video clips to compile all the audio that we played during the podcast, you know, most of his videos are well under 10,000 views on his main YouTube channel there. So, I mean, I think we did choose to kind of focus on him, at least me in particular, because I had seen examples of his videos pop up on my Facebook Mm -hmm. from time to time, or I had seen where he had been brought in when he had he'd gotten enough attention for one of his outrageous hot takes to make some sort of national media appearance, especially on places like Fox News. But when he also attracts conservative Christian right-wing nationalist figureheads to speak at his churches and events, I mean, he had you know an interview with Dinesh D'Souza. He had Roger Stone appear at one of his rallies or revivals. Yeah, like a like a revival meeting or like yeah, a, uh, the the weekend retreat we, we yeah. used to do all the time. And who was yeah, yeah. who was the other the other figure like that tall, tiny faced Tucker Carlson lookalike? What's his name? Oh, oh, um, uh, Ben Shapiro. No, 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 not, no I, I know. Um, um, God, yeah, Frank Shrink's face. Oh, Charlie Kirk. Charlie, Charlie Kirk. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes so yes, when yes, when yes. when he's able to actually like get. <laughs> these high-level figures of the Christian nationalist or white nationalist movement to appear in his church or at his rallies, you know, it helps to make his more fringe mm-hmm. stances more 100%. tolerable to the mainstream uh, Christian right, because those figures do have a wider platform and a wider reach. Yeah. Um, those were the reasons that we kind of decided to focus on him because we thought, Yes, he's kind of extreme in his rhetoric. He's not the most extreme by far, but he's a good example of how toxic certain aspects of this mm. movement definitely mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jesse, let's go ahead and wrap up our last question here. Sure, sure. Um, so what can more moderate or liberal Christians do uh, in their communities to address the growing issues of white Christian nationalism? In other words, what can people like you do to stem the tide? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question um, because to be really honest, moderate and progressive Christians already tend to be highly politically active. Um, as a group, they tend to vote in high numbers. You know, it's, it's not a politically passive group. So there's a lot of ways in which, you know, I look at this and I kind of think they're kind of already doing it. It's good to know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, most moderate and progressive Christians are really already pretty aggressively involved in politics. Um, It's actually kind of funny. um, I've just recently started going back to church, and I found a a beautiful Episcopalian church here in Brooklyn that I'm going to. Um, And as I was chatting with one of the other churchgoers, he told me the way he found the church is because he was doing canvassing for a local Democratic candidate and one of the other canvassers, as they were talking, was like, oh, you're a Christian. You know, what church do you go to? And he told them, oh, you know, I don't really have one at the moment. And they were like, oh, you should check out this Episcopal church. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just a, like kind of a microcosm of how, you know, 
this particular religious branch is pretty active already. Um, I think part of the problem is that it's always been active. And so, you know, whereas you have like Trumpism really energizing these kind of swaths of conservative Christians and rural folks, um, a lot of your kind of more progressive Protestants have already been voting. So like them engaging doesn't necessarily have like a huge numbers impact because they're already there in a lot of senses. Mm. Um, the other big issue that I think is really tricky is that there's no communication between conservative evangelicals and your kind of more progressive, more moderate mainline Protestant groups, largely because conservative evangelicals broadly consider, you know, like the Episcopalian church I go to, the head rector, like the head pastor, essentially, is a married gay man. So right there, your standard conservative evangelical is just going to be like, oh, well, that's like, yeah. that's not like a church that's really like Christian, mm -hmm. you know? That's not biblical in their interpretation. Yeah. Exactly. Um, to the point that they would basically just not consider it to be Christian. They would just think it's all false. Mm -hmm. So when you look at like kind of more moderate progressive Christianity versus conservative evangelicalism, they're basically two different religions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the result of that is that like we, and when I say we, I mean like more moderate Christians, we don't really have much of any sway over the conservative evangelicals because they've already written us all off. They've already decided, right. you know, we're heretics, we're working for the devil, yeah. you know, however they might want to yeah. phrase it. Some of the more generous ones might just say like, they think we're misguided and wrong about a bunch of stuff, but that still means they're not really going to listen to us. Mm. So yeah, outside of like personal connections, you know, I absolutely still have personal connections to people in those circles. You know, I can talk to those people, but there's no real impact. You know, if I wrote like an op-ed, any conservative evangelical who read it would just immediately write me off. They'd be like, oh, this guy's, you know, he's one of them mm -hmm. liberal Christians. Mm. I think this speaks to the feedback loop that we discussed earlier, yeah. where the very specific culture war aspects of right-wing Christianity are just diametrically opposed to that more liberal Christianity. And this was kind of a conversation that I had with Jessica earlier this week, is that when you look at American politics, whether it's in terms of religious worldviews or not, right-wing talking points and media and pundits present everything in these black and white terms of right versus wrong mm -hmm. and they steadfastly refuse to engage with anything that runs counter to their established worldview so you know abortion is murder from the moment of conception because of their very particular interpretation and the influences behind say for example roe versus wade being established legally had to do with you know bodily autonomy and right to privacy of, of your medical records and the idea that in the case of rape and incest or failure of contraception or a life-threatening health risk to the mother as a result of the pregnancy those are the specific reasons why the law was passed to make access to abortion available to people, but from their extremely conservative religious views, none of that factors in. 
they don't address the statistics that 92% of abortions happen within the first nine weeks. They have this interpretation of abortion as third trimester, late term, partial mm-hmm. birth abortion. And they use that interpretation to paint the entire gestation process as, you know, the killing of, you know, a miniature human being rather than any sort of shades of gray or nuance that is embraced by both a secular and even more liberal Christian groups in that sense. So I can understand that conservative Christians are just going to write off any more liberal Christian viewpoint as being non-applicable or fundamentally a incorrect interpretation of, of scripture. Yeah. Um, and since conservatives saw the success that Trump garnered from being salacious and being extreme in his rhetoric, I, I think this also applies to white Christian nationalism as a right-wing phenomenon. But I kind of wonder in what ways more liberal or moderate Christians could make their voices heard on a more national level. Because, yes, obviously, like what Gabe said, they are very politically active as it is. But we generally only hear about the more extreme right-wing Christian perspective in media, I think because it generates attention and clicks and views and ad revenue, where the more moderate Christians, their messaging isn't insistent enough or controversial enough to provide an adequate counter to that more extreme viewpoint. Yeah, I think this is an interesting example of how the the salaciousness of the message has such a huge impact. Um, Because one of the issues for more moderate Christians is that the message, you know, that we have, I think, is tremendously important. Mm. But it's not it's not really like a headliner, you know, right. We're we're trying to say love people and take care of each other, you know, not exactly like clickbait for you. Yeah. That doesn't generate the torches and pitchforks Mm -hmm. uh, response. Exactly. Um, So, so I think you're right that there's, there's definitely like some messaging that can improve. Um, There's a degree to which I'm not sure how to improve it um, Mm. simply because it's like, you know, yeah, this is like a pretty basic, straightforward message. You know, we're not right. trying to like overthrow society. We're trying mm. to make people's lives better. Well, that seems to be a good justification to overthrow the existing status quo. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and now, um, really quick, in my conversation with Jessica earlier this week, she said that one of the actionable solutions would be to try to organize Democrats or liberals under a kind of big ticket issue in the same way that the right wing has been kind of unified in the culture war aspects of being anti-LGBTQ, anti-abortion, like trying to find a specific issue that regardless of the minutia of different political and religious viewpoints on the left, we could unify everyone under as an organized voting block. And her suggestion kind of parroted what Bernie Sanders said was to try to rally everyone under the idea of establishing universal health care as a means to get enough traction to then enact these policies that would improve the lives of the majority of people in American culture and American society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I think the, the problem with that, though, is 
and I think we're seeing this bear out in real time, is that organizing Democrats around a single issue is sort of like herding cats. Mm. Trying to get a bunch of people who are liberal, and liberal tends to mean more free thinking, to, to organize in such a cohesive way around a single issue, it just doesn't seem to work. Like you mentioned Bernie Sanders, who was hugely popular, tried to turn um, universal health care into that wedge issue and failed. So I like I, I, I like that as an idea. Practically speaking, I don't know how the details of it would work out. Right. And I think there are specifically engineered political stumbling blocks put in the way <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. of that kind yeah. of Definitely. You know, I, I hesitate to say revolutionary change, but it's what's needed, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. The status quo of democratic institutions in America is being prioritized over, you know, actually putting the political legwork into enacting these these changes that are are embraced by the majority of the American population. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Um and I mean this is this is the spot where I'm just resisting going on a rant about the complete impotence of the entire American political system. Uh mm. <laughs> We've done quite a few rants on this podcast yeah. series, so yeah. feel free to, to rant as yeah, much no. as you, you feel oh, like you want no, to. I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> our whole system's just set up to be difficult to change, but also set up mm. to protect the ultra-wealthy, you know, from the get-go. Mm. Um, there's a strong argument that I'm sure you're both familiar with that the Founding Fathers really overthrew the British to protect their own personal incomes <laughs> from taxation. Yeah, there are specific interpretations of history that yeah. do strongly suggest that that was a major influence yeah yeah so i mean even even if they legitimately believed in a lot of the life liberty etc that they were writing about like it's hard to believe they didn't have that as you know a secondary motive at least well they did set it up in a way that did allow them to maintain the privilege that they had as highly educated you know yep. light 100 percent. i mean property owners bacon's rebellion got put down harshly for a reason you know, yes. um, right. it was a threat to wealthy landowners. Mm. Um, what did they say the, the three G's were their motivations? God, glory, and gold, right? Uh, that's often ascribed to the explorers, like the kind of your early mm. age of exploration. But I mean, <laughs> there's, a, there's a degree to which it still holds true for them. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, just the whole American system from the ground up has so many deep flaws. The fact that it's a winner-take-all, the fact that we have a political system that just directly weights certain voters above others based on geographic mm. location and population density. I mean, you know, it's it's such a profoundly flawed system that it's something that I struggle with. And I mean, I've told my, uh, like my AP at the school I teach at, I've told her a couple of times, I'm like, you don't really want to have me teach 12th grade government because I'm just going to like paint a hopeless picture for these kids. Because, like, <laughs> I'm not sold that we can, like, fix this. <laughs> I'm not convinced right. of it. I hope we can. I really yeah. do. But um, mm. I'm not sure. Yeah, it is hard to be optimistic. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so do you think we're, like, we're headed over the cliff? Like, have we passed that point of no return, do you think? Or, like, is there a way to, to pull back on the reins and, and stop this thing from happening? I don't think I would say we're past a point of no return, um, though I think we're far past a point of a reasonable return. Um, I think there is a slim, slim ray of hope with the younger generations that are coming up right now. Um, really kind of like your, your Gen Z voters 
Um, I think there is a ray of hope that they will actually engage because of what they've like been raised through. You know, like so many of these kids were raised during the Trump years and just despise him. In many cases, even kids from like conservative families have just kind of come out of this saying like, I despise the Republicans. I despise all of this. Um, oftentimes because of the influence of social media. So I guess that's one positive. <laughs> Meme culture for the win, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think there's like a slim ray of hope that their political engagement and like the slow death of the baby boomer generation will finally start to peel American politics back around. Um, but if I'm being really honest, I'm not sold that that's what's going to do it. Because yeah. um, beyond that, I don't see a way. But I literally see no path forward um, beyond that. Well. Um, so... And again, you know, that's, that's my own kind of yeah. pessimism speaking. Yeah, I, I admit to a pretty wide streak of cynicism on that front, too. I just, I, uh, I've, I've said before, I've adopted Carlin's sort of uh, stance on this. Like, I'm, I'm going to be an observer. I'm going to be like that dude from the cartoon that has his feet up and he's watching the globe across the room just on fire, you know, eating yep. his popcorn. Yep. That's, I, I, there's nothing more we can do now but watch the world burn and make podcasts bitching about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, it's saving up money to buy land in the Hudson Valley, which is one of the least climate change impacted regions of the world. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, to try to kind of bring the episode to close here on a slightly more positive note, I want to, you know, point out that uh, I've been very, very pleased with how this conversation went. It's definitely met my expectations. I, I think we've had a very, very fascinating, very interesting and uh, and very respectful conversation and Jesse and I have been very vocal about our atheism on previous episodes and I think on a positive note it goes to show that you know we can disregard some differences in worldviews as long as we can kind of agree on certain aspects of what we'd like to see as far as social progress and when we can unify people of differing worldviews under the goal of maximizing human well-being, we might have different philosophies as to what we feel informs our respect for human life and, and moral values. But at the same time, we can work together. We can have respectful conversations. We can, we can respectfully agree or disagree on different things. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can find allies in the goal towards, you know, benefiting the poor, the disenfranchised, and improving the lives of, of people who are struggling, both in America and, you know, around the world, one way or the other. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me yeah. on. I, I really appreciated um, your phrasing there of, you know, this, this goal of improving human well-being. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, something I see a lot online is this idea of, you know, we can agree to disagree, so long as what we're disagreeing on isn't basic human rights and decency. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And, you know, and when we're aligned on that, it shouldn't be too much of a problem to work together, regardless of, you know, specific religious or um, social views, if we're aligned on basic human decency and human rights. Exactly. Right. And, and I just want to say, it's, it's been a genuine pleasure meeting you, Gabe. Like, I think um, Andrew's absolutely correct. We've had a great conversation. Um, and I just want to reiterate what I said earlier. I mean, even though you and I are, are almost certainly going to disagree about a great many things, 
it's, it's important to recognize that when it comes to like the project of society, we both agree on the direction that it should be going in. And in that sense, we're on the same side. Mm-hmm. So it, if we can't put aside the, the more, I don't know, the more minute differences. I mean, it really is because we, we have yeah. more in common than we do in, uh, in disagreement in any, any way you slice it. So yeah, it's really been a pleasure. And I really think that conversations of this kind are, are going to be part of the answer to that last question that we asked her, like what, what more can we do to sort of get the, the more progressive message out and to try to make more of a coalition of ourselves. So this has been, as Andrew said, a really great conversation. Awesome. Well, I think this will bring another episode of Unheard Voices to a close. Thanks again, Gabe, for joining us. We've been trying to organize this for a couple months now, and I'm very pleased with the result. So thanks again. And uh, for Andrew Muneer. This is Jesse Burridge. And Gabriel Muneer. We thank you guys for listening, and we will talk at you again soon.